Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to, wait, what? Comics and Pop Culture Podcast, coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I have a hefty two-and-a-half-hour installment, wherein we cover the recent spate of comics news, a look at the first few parts of the No Surrender storyline in Avengers, Mr. Miracle by Tom King and Mitch Gerards, a discussion of characters as opposed to takes, the Netflix adaptation of The End of the Fucking World by Charles Forsman, a very spoiler-filled discussion about Star Wars The Last Jedi, and our good old pal, much, much more. Comments on this episode are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Send us your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lasser! Graham McMillan, hello! Welcome to the show that never ends. Welcome, oh, Jeff! Welcome to sh- Shutdown Government Shutdown Podcast. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, man. Man, what a weird couple of days it's been, I gotta tell ya. Oh. Have you been paying a lot of attention to the news? No, not, not really. That's the thing, like, a little bit, but just following Twitter, like... Which I kind of appreciate, because Twitter really does have... I, I saw you on there last night complaining that Twitter was quiet on Friday evening. I was, which is so stupid, because I, really, <laughs> I was like, oh, why, where is everyone? And it wasn't so much that anyone was responding to me, you know, in the sense of, like, I was just tweeting out into the void. But, like, normally, you know how it is. You refresh the browser, and you get, like... You know, I follow I follow an absurd number of people, oh, so it's like I'm, I'm actually curious how many people do because I follow like 500. I I follow a thousand. I've got like I'm following a thousand. Holy people. shit! Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's not not nuts. Like it, it, I'm trying to think of a good way of saying this. Like, just, is the churn not so much that there's like it's hard to keep up with with what's going on? Well, that's actually a good question. I mean, I sort of... Because it's for me, and I follow literally half the amount of people you follow. Yeah, well, um, you know, it could very well be that you and I do Twitter differently. Like, I kind of dip my toe in, and I see what's on the feed, Um, and then if there's... But, you know, there's really not that many people that I make a point to, like check follow. them specifically you know what i mean like like when i come onto twitter i'll be like oh what's graham saying you know what i mean and i'll look on your page so i'll I, do I, that with it i know you do that because i've seen you like all of a sudden clearly read things that i wrote like two days ago yeah on exactly suddenly i'm liking and i'm like i'm like oh i guess he's just looking at the page yeah exactly yeah. Exactly, because it's just been it's been days, you know. So, so yeah, I, see, I don't do that. I literally just see what's what pe- what's happening, like at that moment. Which, which makes sense. Which makes sense. I mean, it, and that used to be the way that I did it. I think the more you're on Twitter, the more that's the way you do it. And just with the nature of my job changing, I spend less time browsing. Um, checking Twitter frequently throughout the day. And so when I do, it tends to be a little more targeted. Excuse me. I couldn't even get to the mute button in time for that one. Um, no, no, that, that's, I feel that that fits in with a, uh, yes. like I, I comment, I, I comment about Twitter. <laughs> but, uh, so, so yeah, it was just, it was interesting. Honestly, um, yeah, no, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of all over the map, I think on Twitter. Cause it is a little bit of a case of, uh, you know, I, I, I'll be, I'll follow people like, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like I don't 
unfollow a lot of people and maybe I probably should, but so I do this thing where I pick up a lot of people and then every once in a while I'll be like, it'll be like six months down the line. I'll get annoyed and then I'll start, I'll unfollow a few and then it'll, it'll shrink by a couple of hundred and then it'll suddenly jump up. I was really surprised to find that I was following like a thousand people, but it, but a lot of those people are also people that as far as I can tell, don't necessarily tweet that often. I mean, which, which also might be a, the thing yeah like I, I i regularly not regularly i for some reason try and always get it back on periodically under 500 mm-hmm. uh and i don't know about you but i tend to follow people and then for want of a better way of putting it like it doesn't it's not relevant to me right do you know what i mean like it, it's like uh, it, it's it's you know they don't tweet that much or i follow them for a particular reason which i do a bunch for work actually i follow a bunch right. of people because i'm like okay you know like they're talking about this thing that i'm i'm thinking about writing about yeah and then i'm like i'm done right <laughs> you know and there, there's there's no other reason to like there's no other reason for me to be following them but i always try and get it around back to 500 because for some reason 500 is like the number in my brain Makes i'm like sense. i can deal with this 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 amount anymore is going to drive me crazy right well, uh, yeah, I think that, I think that makes, I, in a way, to me, it sort of makes sense I, that you would do it that way. I just think, again, there's a lot of people that I follow that I don't follow for work. You know, they might be people who listen to the podcast and might say something and I would look at their timeline and I follow them back and then they quiet down. Like I, I'm definitely aware. I feel like the last couple of weeks I've been, kind of on a good run of like, oh, I've got something to say. This will make a good tweet. I'm going to tweet it, you know. But there was a period where, and I think it's easy to do this with Twitter, where you just kind of retweet stuff. You kind of turn into oh, just... Oh, that, yeah. No, you, I, I, you just, that's all you do. Yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm quasi in that now. Mm-hmm. Especially when, like, newsy stuff happens. Right. I find myself just retweeting things. Yeah, yeah. You know, and especially when it got to like you know uh, the Me Too things and things like that, it's like mm-hmm. I have nothing to add to this conversation. Yeah, because like I'm a straight white male. Right. Exactly. You know? Right. So it, it's more useful for me to 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 retweet things. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and and I think that's, and there's also I think there's a little bit of the dissonance. I think it, it's easy for me to get to a thousand because. Not that many people follow me comparatively. I mean, more than I'm following, but which is nice, although probably, you know, 700 of them are like bots. But, but that's also kind of this thing of like, um, depending on how it works, I realize I want to try and keep a closer balance of that because sometimes it's like I'm following these people and I want to participate in a conversation and I sort of realize they don't follow me. And so, there's that weird sort of barging into their mentions kind of feeling where it's like never sure if that's sometimes that's acceptable or whatever. I tend to be really shy about tweeting people that I don't know. And by not knowing it's like people who aren't following me back. You know what I mean? So I, you've said before that you're pretty fearless about tweeting just anyone, you know, and I, I to, to an extent. Yes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's some people who I just won't, mm-hmm. uh, but not like I, I tweet a bunch of, uh, this sounds like a weird humble brag or egotistical, but part of me is, feels like, you know, 
I can tweet certain, especially within the comic industry people, mm-hmm. um, because they're probably going to know who I am, or if they check my page, yeah. they're like, oh, I know Hollywood Reporter, I know Wired. Yeah, exactly. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They should know who you are. Yeah. And that doesn't, I know you wouldn't put it that way, but I think it's fair to say that, you know. Yeah, that makes me uncomfortable. Well, no, I'm just, I don't mean as in like, and they're idiots if they don't. I'm just saying that I feel like the pool of people who regularly cover comics content is not especially big out, especially when you move outside the realm of the traditional comics news sites, you know. I, which... oh God, I, this, this makes me want to tell you, and I can't remember who is, which is going to utterly kill the, the joke. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I did for the Hollywood Reporter like the Marvel had a shit 2017 story. Yes, and it got like the link got shared by someone in comics, and I honestly for the life of me can't remember now, and it's really upsetting me. But someone it was someone who worked for the big two, um, and they were like, I see that mainstream sites only ever cover comics when the when bad things happen. And whoever it was, like, not only have I covered their shit before, I've interviewed them for THR. Yeah. And I found this out because my THR editor was like, I almost sent him links for all the times you've written about his books. Yeah, you know, because it is. The, and but you know what? <sighs> Whatever. Well, it's funny because, um, uh, God bless Al uh, Kennedy at House to Astonish because I think he mentioned our he mentioned our uh, the Wait What podcast Twitter. You know, he he. Uh, in the context of him being like, man, a lot of news broke yesterday. Yes, I hope one yeah, of the podcasts then, cover it. You know, yes. yeah. And I was like, oh, uh, considering I checked that at like three thirty today, I'm like, huh, maybe I should go see what happened yesterday. You know, because it's just wait, you don't you don't know all the comics news this week? Sort of. I think I maybe do because I went and oh, hit Jeff, bleeding cool very quickly. But yeah, this week and especially yesterday, we're recording on Saturday, so I'm mm-hmm. talking about Friday. We're nuts. Yeah. Um, yesterday was the weirdest day mm-hmm. for comics news. Um, should we just go into it? Cause like, I kind of want to talk about the weird, the weirdness of yesterday. Sure, definitely. So yesterday, uh, started, quote unquote started, at, uh, 9.30 Pacific time. Mm-hmm. Was the embargo lifted for DC going, Action Comics 1000 is coming out. It's, uh, Superman has his pants back and it's the first Bendis story at DC. Right, and there's a bunch of stuff in Action Comics 1000. It's uh, it's Jim Lee and Brian Bendis doing a 10-page story. It's Paul Tomasi and Pat Gleason doing a 15-page story. It's Dan Jurgens doing a 15-page story. There is an unpublished Kurt Swan story with a new script by Marv Wolfman. Wow. Uh, Tom King and Clay Mann are doing a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brad Meltzer and John Cassidy is doing a story. And there's something else. There's someone oh, else. In- it's it's everyone's oh, it's, favorite. It, 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 no, no, it's 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 uh, Jeff Johns, Richard Donner, and someone else are doing a story. Oh, but um, the yeah. guy whose name rhymes with Rax Randis isn't 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 doesn't have a story in it. Uh, it, he wasn't listed in the announcement. Um, okay. Um. So anyway, so the, so the DC announcement was um, the trunks are back, and also Bendis. <laughs> I, I, I shit you not. The the PR headline was the red trunks are back, right? And DC got it trending on Twitter under the trunks hashtag the trunks are back. 
Like that was the positioning for the story. Wow. Um, and in response, Marvel had three announcements, mm-hmm. which is nuts to me mm-hmm. because. Like, well, you don't necessarily know that it was in response per se, I, right? But sure, it seems likely that after Marvel weeks dropped, of dropping nothing, they would. Yeah, you know, the yeah. Marvel dropped three news stories on the same day. Mm-hmm. Seems on those news stories were. Dan Slott is leaving Spider-Man, which we all fucking knew, despite the fact he kept on denying it. Right. But he's taking over Iron Man. Right. It's new story number one. New story number two, Kelly Thompson is now Marvel exclusive. Right. And new story number three, the Wolverine is back in the most fucking confusing manner ever. In a <laughs> like, I'm going to have to pull up the, the email because uh, not only was the email unclear to me, and I said so on Twitter, and also in my fucking Hollywood Reporter story, but I then got the editor of another high-profile comic site DMing me going, yeah, I didn't understand either. Wow. Okay, here's the here's the message. He has been make Also, this was released at, like... Uh, it was definitely after they had closed... Let's see, do I actually have a time? No, I don't have the time, I only have the date. It was definitely after East Coast had closed, because I know that me and two other people asked Marvel... Like, immediately responded going, we don't understand this email, please can you explain? And none of us got responses. Right. Because that's how well it went. Beautiful. He's been making his way across the Marvel Universe in some of your favorite books, protecting an Infinity Stone and keeping his secrets closed. But his return has been an unsolved mystery, and now it will all start to unravel, beginning with an epic quest that will leave no corner of the Marvel Universe untouched. The return of Wolverine begins here. Bear in mind, Wolverine came back in a September release comic. Yeah. But the return of Wolverine begins here, here being an April comic. Mm-hmm. Helmed by superstar writer Well, no, Charles no, no, no. no. It, I, the whole point is that they're going with, I'm sure, because actually I think I saw this on Bleeding Cool. When Wolverine returned, he was already back. But this is the series that shows his actual return. Right, right? exactly. That's, yeah. that's, that's their thing. Uh, but here's the confusing part. Are you ready? Yep. Hitting comic shops this April, the all-new 40-page issue one by Sewell and David Marquez starts the twisted mystery of Logan's return. Then this May, the story evolves into four different tales from different creative teams, each one containing its own distinct genre and mystery. Action-adventure, the adamantium agenda, horror, claws of the killer, dark romance, mystery madripoor, and noir detective, weapon lost. Jeff, does that sound like it is? Four one-shots? Four series? One series that has four different stories in it. Right. Yeah, it's it is definitely unclear. Points. Yeah, it's right. true. So, yep. Later on in the, in the uh, press release, it quotes the editor, and he says, "Hunt for Wolverine issue one has a stunning revelation, and the four books that spring from it mm-hmm. each have a mind-bending status quo changing reveal by amazing talent that I can't wait to announce." But it still doesn't say, <laughs> "Are they one shots? Are they series? Like what? What is actually happening?" You know what's great is that person says they can't wait to announce, but literally they're waiting to announce it. Well, of course. I mean, it really is just like absolute hyperbole to the point of of being a contradiction. You know, it's amazing. Anyway, yeah, it sounds like four books, which sounds insane. Right, like but, four but series, which a, would be... It, in, it sounds be, like series, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. Which would be Here's insane. Here's the crazy thing. Yeah. Beep's the crazy thing. This is like April and May this is happening. Yeah. But in the same time, the Infinity Countdown series starts, which also has Wolverine in it. 
the same Wolverine as well. Not, the, I mean, I know they have like four different Wolverines right now, but this is the same. Like this is the Logan Wolverine. <laughs> At the same time as this series, like, oh my god, we're doing this amazing thing. He's in the other events book. Sure. Yeah. Which means Wolverine is back and is going to be in multiple event books at the same time. Yep. But those time it's it's like Dunkirk, it, Graham. I, it's I, actually the each part happens in a different time frame. You know. Well, it is. And it's, I'm pretty, fairly sure that this mystery that is going to reach all sort of cool hidden corners of the Marvel universe, as Charles Sewell calls it, uh, or the mind bending status quo change and reveal as Mark Panisha calls it, like is related to Infinity Countdown. Like I'm sure it's all part of the same story. Mm-hmm. But when your PR literally leaves people going, I literally don't understand what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's this makes no yeah. sense. I'm a trained professional and this does not I cannot pass along this information because I don't know what it means. It's not it's not it's not a good look. It's so yeah, so uh DC are like Superman has trunks again. And Brian Bendis, who signed with the company three months ago, uh, sorry, two months ago, is writing for us. And in response to Honestly Look Like Marvel, was like, oh shit, okay, Dan Slott's writing Iron Man, and Kelly Thompson's is exclusive, and Wolverine's back. <laughs> stuff? We're doing stuff too. Yeah, totally. It was weird. Like, yeah. after, after Marvel not announcing things, mm-hmm. you know? All of a sudden, to have three announcements in the same day. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus. And so that one today was like, well, maybe it's because it's all related to solicits coming out next week. But like, Dan Slott's not going to be writing Iron Man next month. You know, mm-hmm. Bendis hasn't even finished Iron Man for another couple of months. <laughs> and Kelly Thompson being exclusive isn't an exclusive thing. It's the weirdest thing. I, I, I honestly think they just were like, we're worried the Superman Trunks thing slash Brian Bendis is going to get out of hand. Right. Release news. <laughs> yeah, we're just we're just going to release a ton of news, um, that that really is that that does have such the tenor of, you know, Marvel announces that it's totally got a new boyfriend that it likes much better than their last boyfriend. You know, it's very. <laughs> I do dance lot training Iron Man, so that that's going to be great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, uh, apart from the, the exclusive news, cause I've heard really good things, uh, about oh, the- Oh, Kelly, Tom- Kelly Thompson is good. Like, yeah. that's a, that's a really smart move from Marvel. Yeah. She's good. She's excited about working for Marvel. Hopefully they're gonna give her good books. Um, like, that's a really smart move on mm-hmm. Marvel's part. Mm-hmm. I guess. I mean, you know, the thing that's funny is, is I, I cause, in the process of reading some comics for today, one of the things that I picked up like weeks ago that I haven't, there's two things actually, but what's germane is what I actually read today is, um, they had the first trade, uh, digitally of, uh, Chip Zdarsky's, uh, Spectacular Spider-Man for like stupid cheap on like Amazon or I think it was comics all, yeah, I think it was Amazon like. Wait, is, is the, is the price, are they still lowering prices? No, 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 no. This was kind of like weeks ago when it was, oh, so when stuff was, was still was, lowered. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was like $2 and $2.99 or like two fifty. It was like, it was literally six issues for less than you would have paid for one issue I of just, a comic book, which is. I just checked right now. It's still five fifty in the Kindle store. Right. Five 
that's 550. That was the regular price and they marked it down or maybe it was. Maybe it was under 6 bucks and I was like you know, I bought the I mean, first two issues for six issues. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, Actually, seven issues because they're, they're material from the Free Comic Book yeah, Day thing as well, which is really good. You know, and so this is my thing: is like I read the Free Comic Book Day story, which I had not read, and the first two reread the first two issues of Spectacular Spider-Man, which I liked okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I liked the first issue a lot, and rereading them, especially as a Vulture stuff, I'm like, this is this is good, and I kind of had yeah. that thing of like. Zdarsky on Spider-Man is good. Uh, Al Ewing on anything is good. You know, uh, I picked up, I haven't read it, but I know that, uh, Saladin Ahmed is, did a, a signing at, at Comics Experience today for the Black, oh, for Black Bolt Bolt trade, Bolt. which, Black, you know. Black Bolt's, I, I don't love it as much as some people love it, mm-hmm. but it's, it's good stuff. Right. So there's that, uh, there's Kelly Thompson on Hawkeye, like, Marvel, Marvel's, Marvel's got significant problems. It's not necessarily problems with the, the quality of their creators. You know, maybe it's having, being able to build any heat for them is, is one thing, you know, or, or their actual ability to move product. Like no one, like they just managed to to like slash and burn their crops just too many times and now nothing's growing but like i just was struck by this today cuz cuz this is one of the things spectacular spider-man's had like a horrific drop off in like one year right isn't it didn't it start well, it's, by it's selling just, it's just launched well but also like it started by it started with stupid numbers uh, mm-hmm. It was in a, a creator, a collector core box. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. It's like it started. It started with inflated, inflated numbers. Okay, because it's it was like Marvel's second most successful book last year. Mm-hmm. Right for the first but, issue, right? But yeah, for the first issue, and then like probably dropped, you know, ninety nine percent or see, whatever. That's Actually, it. Like, I think I, 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 we should check looked, the numbers, but it, the most recent numbers are like technic. I mean. They're technically good for Marvel in that I think it might be in the forty thousand range, but it is, it's a it's a staggering drop off from like even the, even the first arc. Uh, okay, so it launched. It's, I'm trying to see it's the first month, June maybe. Do you remember when it launched? Nah, I wish I could say that. <laughs> You're like I would. Okay, it did. It launched in it launched in June. Uh huh. With sales of 224,620 issues. Okay. Current to Right. Uh, and then the next month, it is down to 54,000. Ooh, okay. Alright, so we get a sense of just how much that was overinflated through various factors. Like, if you, yeah, if here's you... the, here's the crazy thing. Uh-huh. There are also reorders of that book of issue one in the July sales. Wow. Okay. So it's uh, that's super weird. Let's look in December. Does the December that, numbers are right? Like you said, Let's that that see. almost makes sense if there's a col- if there's a collector core or some sort of tie-in involved, right? Because that means right. that the numbers are so hugely inflated, you know, through the collector core. But like retailers still aren't being served for the demand for the book, so they have to do reorders. And by December. Mm-hmm. It's selling 29,000 copies. 29,000. Okay. That is worse than I thought. Yeah. That was, that's not good. You know, it's, it's not good, but at the same time, that's kind of a middle, that's, that's middle, 
uh, range these days. Jesus. You know? I mean, look, if you look at the top ten, mm-hmm. uh, Marvel's first book is at number three. It's mm-hmm. Phoenix Resurrection, The Return of Jean Grey, issue one. Right. At 145,000, which mm-hmm. is good. Then its number two book is Amazing Spider-Man Venom Incorporated Alpha. Because, of course, that's the numbering for it. Um, but think about it. Amazing Spider-Man is Marvel's best-selling ongoing title. Yeah. Okay? It's the first part of a crossover with Venom. Mm-hmm. It's an event book tying in with that, and it only sells 69,000 copies. Yeah. Amazing Spider-Man itself sells 53,000 copies. Right. Right. Sorry, six. Sorry, sixty-one. Oh, that's interesting. It double shipped that month. The first month, the uh, first issue of the month sold sixty-one thousand, and the second issue sold fifty-three. Oh, see, now that's terrible. That's yeah, fascinating though. Yeah, that's that's. So, there's crazy. a difference of eight thousand. Is it is like, it a freely order variant? Is there a variant cover on the one that's I, not on the other? I have, I have no idea. Wow, I have no idea. Shit. Uh, yeah, but like that's, you know, that's not good. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. That, that's really not good. Uh, so yeah, Marvel sales are just, Marvel sales are not good. Well, so yeah, so that's kind of my point is, is kind of like, I'm like, Z- Starsky's does good. So that's kind of my thing is, is like, oh, no, exactly. Marvel's there's good kind work of, out there. yeah, there's, there's, there's good, work good work out work there. there. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There's, there's some solid stuff. Um, you know, actually, I wanted to ask you, uh, the Avengers thing that is now sort no, of getting no underway. No surrender. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What did you think? Because I know you, you got a copy or read a copy or I thought I saw you tweeted I, I, about I, a copy. I read. No, I did. I, I, I read the first two issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do I think? I think it's overpriced. Mm-hmm. I think the first issue was a mess. Um, and, and, and a mess in, um, a mess in a surprising way. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone involved is, is capable of great work. Mm-hmm. You know, cause you've got Mark Wade, Jim Zub and Al Ewing are writing. Mm-hmm. And, God, I can't remember the name of the artist. George Jimenez? Is that, is he? No, he's, he's a DC. Who is, uh, I'm going to see who who is drawing the first month. Um, oh, Pepe Larraz. Mm. And Pepe Larraz does like super solid, actually George Jimenez-esque superhero work. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them are, are, you know, are capable of doing good work. The first issue is just amazingly unfocused, scattered, and uh, kind of failure. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Lots of like, oh shit, something's happening. Like, is a meteor? What's that? Explosions? Oh no! <laughs> for for an ex- extended issue, because it's all filler up to you get to the last page, and the last page is, oh, it's it's me. I'm Voyager. I'm back. Remember me? And the other Avengers are like, oh, you've come back. This is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get to the end of the issue, and they, the, that issue is five dollars, and you get to the end of the issue, and you're like, this, this is. Like five bucks, Jesus! This, this this is not worth five. This is not only not worth five dollars, but it's not worth the number of pages that, that it's taken to get here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because there has been so much of like, uh, like do you remember uh, the first 
No, in fact, I think it's the second issue of the Infinity Gauntlet, where natural disasters are happening. Yeah. And, and there's lots of characters being like, what is happening? And that takes up like maybe five pages, and then they're like, it's Thanos. Yeah. Imagine those five pages for like a 40-page book. Ooh. Ooh. And that's what it is. Right? Right. Uh, and so I, I, like that first issue, I was really like, oh, no. Mm-hmm. No. Like this, 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 this should work, and it just does not work. And also, really interestingly, uh, do you remember when we were, when I say we were reading Fifty Two? You might not have done this at all. When I was reading Fifty Two, there was the game of who wrote which page. Oh yeah, which I was never very good at. I have to say, surprisingly terrible. You know, uh, No Surrender, at least the first issue, is really clear who is writing which part of the book. Hmm. The voices do not merge. Hmm. Um, which was really surprising again. Mm-hmm. And you know, I could be wrong. People could be doing great impressions of each other's voices. Right. Uh, but I definitely I was reading, I was going, oh, that's an Al Ewing page. Oh, that, that's Mark Wade. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that feels like Jim's up, you know, but this definitely feels like a Mark Wade line. Mm-hmm. Um, to a distracting degree. You know, cause there's not much else in the book. Cause mm-hmm. it really is, you know, more and more scenes of disaster. Um, so it felt very uh, unsatisfying. The second issue, I think, is a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but doesn't convince me that this book needs to exist, for want of a better, better way of putting it. Mm. Um, it feels... It feels like they're sort of reaching to try and earn the weekly status. Mm-hmm. You know? And that this would have been just fine as a monthly story where there was less filler. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can. Mm-hmm. And and it could be that it's just going to keep getting stronger. And, you know, like a month into it, I'm going to be like, oh, this is great! Because the f- second issue is definitely better than the first. Mm-hmm. Um, but based on the first two, I'm like, I, you know, this feels like an event format in search of a story. Right. Which is, <laughs> again, it's that thing of Marvel has eroded so much goodwill that it's really easy to not be like, well, of course, you know, cause that, cause that's, that's how they, that's basically divines Marvel for like the last some odd years, you know, it's just. Yeah, it, but it's, it's weirdly distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a great joke, mm-hmm. which I kind of love. Which is, so Voyager is the hero who worked with the team before and then was forgotten by everyone. Mm-hmm. And she literally runs into triumph. Uh, the just, like Mark Way's Justice League character who had exactly the same high concept. Oh, funny. E- except it's, he's called Victory, but he's fucking triumph. Like he's, he's, you know, not only Victory Triumph, but his costume is pretty much exactly the same. That's really funny. And it's, it's this moment of like, oh, it's like when Steve Englehart took Mantis to Justice League. <laughs> You know, the creator's like, you're not doing anything with this character, and I had other things I wanted to do. Right. You know? And I, I liked the in-jokiness of that. I really did appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's not... It should be better. And it's funny, because uh, over the holidays, I was catching up on things, and that was when I read Black Bolt. But I also, because of the Marvel sale, got all of Al Ewing's Ultimates mm-hmm. as well. Which I'd read, mm-hmm. but I was just like, I wonder if it reads better in collection. And I liked it in single issues, but I was like, I wonder if it reads better in collection. Because it is, like, both Ultimates and Ultimate Squared were the, were one story. Right. You know? It's just that it was split across two series, because of course it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great. Like, it, it, reading it in one sitting, 
mm-hmm. you're just like, oh, this is fucking great. Like, this is, for me, I was like, this feels like what people get from Starlin who like Starlin. Mm. Because it is, like, it's, he is, he's literally doing the Cosmic Marvel thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the plot, did you read any of his ultimate stuff? Yeah, yeah, I mean, <coughs> although it's that classic, like, I wasn't so crazy about the art, so I kept getting stuff and dropping off, and it's, it's interesting how much I love Al Ewing's work, and yet I'm never a very consistent reader of his Marvel work, which is weird. It's like, I love Ewing, I love Marvel. So like Ultimates, I feel like I read the first two to maybe three issues of maybe Ultimates and Ultimate Squared. Like Ultimates starts off with them basically recruiting Galactus, right? Yes. And yes. I don't even think I've oh, made or it. Fix, fixing Galactus. Fixing not, Galactus, they, yeah. They never actually recruit him as such. Right. Um, yeah. But then that goes into an Ultimate Squared. It goes into Galactus basically gets the team back together. Mm. Because Galactus realizes that Eternity is under attack. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because Eternity is under attack from Order and Chaos, who mm. have been affected by the reboot of the universe because of Secret Wars. That that weirdo ISO 7 to ISO 8 thing that, that yeah. he brought in. So they've basically been unbalanced since then. Interesting. And they're, they're like, so we're, we're just going to take over. Mm-hmm. So we're going to, we're going to attack eternity and then we are going to become, you know, the people making decisions or the, mm-hmm. the entities making decisions. And Galactus, who has been transformed from the guy who eats planets to Galactus the life bringer, mm-hmm. is the one who steps in and is like, no, <laughs> like, this is not what you do. I, I am on the same level as you and, and you can't do this. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, fuck you. We're going to turn you back into a plant eater. And he's like, oh, shit. Okay, Ultimates, you've got to save the day. Right. And at the same time, Al Ewing being Al Ewing is like, what if I take Spitfire and the Troubleshooters and Justice from the New Universe? Wow. And come up with Marvel Universe versions of them. Mm-hmm. And they are they think the Ultimates are bad guys. And so they're going to try and, and uh, stop them. But they're going to do it essentially in like existential ways. <laughs> huh. So they basically show up and they're like, okay, what if we all have a fight in your mind? Mm. Uh, the fight really an ideological discussion <laughs> with punching. Mm-hmm. You know? And so it's like, it's, it's very Al Ewing mm-hmm. in that sense. Like, where it's simultaneously, um, it's very aware of the tropes, it's very aware of the history, it's very aware of how ridiculous it all is, mm-hmm. uh, and playing up to the tropes and fulfilling the tropes while also subverting the tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also Ewing doing Starlin. Mm-hmm. You know, because you cut from that back to like, it's eternity in chains and he is crying. <laughs> you know? Or mm-hmm. it is order and chaos having like ridiculous conversations about order and chaos. Right. Uh, and it, it, like, I loved it. Like I read, reading it all in a wonder. And like I said, I liked it in individual issues, mm-hmm. but reading it all in a wonder, I loved it. Like mm-hmm. it amplified everything because it is so coherent. Mm-hmm. Despite split across two series, despite having like I think three different artists, because it's uh, Ken Throckafor for Ultimates, Christian Ward does a fill-in. I want to say, mm-hmm. uh, oh, it's four because then uh, Ultimate Squared is Travel Foreman, whose stuff is great, by the way. Mm-hmm. He's the perfect artist for that second series. And then Odd Koch does does uh, a couple of issues there, which are are super fun, especially because. Odd's art just doesn't look like it belongs in a Marvel comic. Mm-hmm. 
just does not like at all. And so seeing Odd doing like you know it's Galactus's fucking origin as he's recounting in conversation to Ego the Living Planet. It feels like it sort of pushes Al to sort of re-embrace his small pressures in a weird way. Uh huh. But in a Marvel comic, mm-hmm. and and it's a really fun issue. Uh, but all of that hangs together remarkably well. Mm. You know, it it holds together really well. So I'm so I'm coming into this Avengers bit going. You know, Mark Wade does super solid superhero stuff. That's just what he does. Like it's right. his bread and butter. Uh, Jim Zub does traditional superheroes, but makes it fun in a way that I haven't seen in a Marvel comic in a long time. Mm-hmm. Al Ewing, it just is great. It's genre stuff just is wonderful. This is going to be a, like, this is can't fail. Right. And that first it's like, it's not working. <laughs> and I'm weirdly upset that it's not working because everyone is better than this. Mm-hmm. You know? So it was a weird, it was a weird thing. Hmm. That is, well, that's good to know. Cause that's kind of, I was curious about it. It, it was, I, the only reference I saw was your appreciation for the, the in joke about victory. So slash triumph. So I really had that thing of like, Oh, I think he really dug it. I'll have to, I have to ask him. So. It's weirdly enough. It's one of those things where I'm like, I think it's going to read much better in collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, if only because I, I mean, I can't express how disappointed I was in that first issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, re- I really was like, I got the end issue and nothing fucking happened. Ugh. And I paid five dollars for it. Yeah, that is, that is, you no, know? like, I, like, good. I was like, I, I honestly was like, this is the worst foot forward for this. Mm-hmm. Like, this is terrible. I can't believe they did this. Mm. Um, but then the second issue was good. And, and, and again, like, I came back more, le- more or less because I was like, all of these people were better than that first issue. Right. Like it's it's got to get better, and it does. But there, it's like if you ever had something where not even that you expected that you would love it, but that you come away so disappointed that you're like something must have gone wrong. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, it's probably a lot of that stuff. I suppose. I just it's funny because I kind of have that like, um, you know, my glib answer is like, oh yeah, Tom King's Batman. But, you know, but honestly, I really don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, although that being said, Graham, did you see Super Friends Part 3, that Batman Wonder Woman issue? I haven't read it. I haven't read it. Okay. Well, good. Cause that is, will prevent us from having another segment of Graham and Jeff fight about Batman. Hey, you know. <laughs> I, I was, I was, I, I, I've heard, a, I've heard a lot of criticism. Yeah, it's well. really interesting because it was like I really had that after those last two issues, last three issues. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm on board. I'm, I'm on board. And it's, and it really is like, oh, now that I'm on the train, I've just been shoved forcibly off the train. So, we'll see how it goes. But um, uh, so, so you were on board after the the um, it's Bruce Wayne, but he's evil issue. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, part of me was like, it wasn't great. I mean, it, it was one of those things where for me, um, it, interestingly enough, it had a lot of stuff that I kind of liked. 
like I don't remember the anadrome or whatever the term is for the for the rescrambled phrases or whatever. I was like, oh, this is like what I thought was interesting was again the stuff that I liked seemed to be the stuff that King was um, sort of implicitly critiquing about Batman and Batman stories, and I was like, okay, but it, but at least it had a. Um, sort of a, the, the criticism was, I guess, made thematically explicit, I suppose, you know, yeah. so I was kind of like, okay, sure, you know, it, it didn't necessarily, um, kill me, but I, how do I put it? I, I was like, okay, it, it was one of those issues where I kind of felt like, where I finally felt like King's, the, King was finally able to present a critique at the level that I suppose it deserved to be presented at, whereas before I thought most of his, a lot of his, his criticisms, the, a lot of his thematic drive, it looks like, for this, toward this criticism about the Batman mythos seemed to be, um, you know, kind of not honed enough. You know what I mean? It's, it seemed kind of clumsy. Uh, and at least that issue, I'm like, eh, I don't love it, but at least it felt like it was, you know, like I said, at the level that it should be to make the sort of argument that it's making. And then of course, when you get to something like Super Friends Part 3, I was like, yeah, eh, that's, that's just, there, there are times when I want to be very generous with King, and to me it's worth remembering that comparatively the guy has, it's, it's, he's definitely now getting to the point where I can't just be like, oh, you know, he hasn't really written that many comics. But, you know, for some of the early couple of Batman volumes that I didn't like, I was like, okay, I gotta really remember this guy has got, you know, what, maybe less than 50 issues under his belt writing wise at this point? You know, that's, he's still, he's still making these transitions, I suppose. I am, I am fascinated by, um, your switch from, I feel like you were incredibly up on him Mm -hmm. with Grayson, especially with Grayson, but also with, with the vision. Mm -hmm. Oh, Uh, absolutely. Yeah. By all means. And, and, um, I trailed off and meant to trail back on, but stuff from Sheriff of Babylon I thought was quite strong too. Well, well, you know? But but and but that's I guess that's what I'm saying. Like you like his earlier work, you were like, oh my god, right? And now you're like, oh my god. <laughs> well, because I and, think and, there and, is and a little bit really about because yeah. Well, what, what I was going to ask is, is part of it because you feel that he's not fulfilling the the potential you saw in him earlier? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I. It could be a, it could be a lot of factors, you know. I think mm-hmm. that because uh, I f- I feel like on some level it's not just that it's Batman, although I think the Batman of it all is very important to to how unhappy you are with it. Mm-hmm. But also that I feel like you're disappointed in him in uh, a weird way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it could be that. I mean, I think Peter Tomasi has written worse comics, but I don't think you'd ever get as upset with Peter Tomasi. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but I'm also really indifferent about Peter Tomasi like That's, I go through periods which, which is what it, which yeah. is what I'm saying yeah exactly like uh, I, I feel that it's it's easier to um, 
not be as let down by someone that you didn't have such high hopes for? Well, I just, I think it still might be a, a, I feel like I still have high hopes. Like my expectations are still riding through. You know what I mean? Like part of me is like, I, I like what he's been doing on, uh, Mr. Miracle, you know, uh, a lot. And, you know, part of, like I said, part of me, I, I think when I was trying to give him, again, sort of a benefit of the doubt is like, I just don't think that I like what he's saying about Batman. I don't like his take, you know, and. But you like he's taking Mr. Miracle? Yes and no. I mean, I, I like. I think what I like about the stuff in Mr. Miracle and this, and this I think could be the other part of it. And I don't know for sure because it's uh, something that I started thinking in the last three or four minutes is maybe, um, as someone who appreciates form, uh, formalistic storytelling stuff and feeling like King is trying to to tell do uh, is taking a very formalistic approach to things even while he's trying to use it to mine a lot of emotion um is is that sometimes when it's executed better it's easier to forgive you know what i mean like whereas i think sometimes coming at it from a formalistic thing it's like if it doesn't land, if I'm like, ah, that was kind of shoddily executed or that was kind of clumsy, you know what I mean? Like it's it's easier for me to appreciate an empty triumph, I suppose, you know, as as, as a formalistic fan. So I think, you know, a lot of it is there's a there's a real difference between a monthly comic you know, with King and somebody that he's collaborated with, uh, Mitch Gerard, who's a significant talent on his own, um, to where even when I get a little hand wringing about where things are going, I'm still pretty, pretty, I'm, it's, 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 like, I'll be like, yeah, that issue landed, or this, this had satisfying moments that weren't marred by something that I thought that was really tone deaf or really dumb or really poorly executed, you know, or again, you know, because I don't, but yeah, there's, there's levels where I'm kind of like, eh, it's, that's not my light ray, you know what I mean? Which is silly, you know, but it sometimes is a factor. It's funny. I, um, over the last few weeks, I realized, you know, I think I, I listed off that obscene number of things that I bought in the DC sale. I, I bought the Cosmic mm-hmm. Odyssey trade and Cosmic Odyssey is an, is kind of an amazing miniseries for me in that, um, I bought all the issues when it came out and I never got past the second issue, I think, the third issue. So I was like, God, I've got to finish this motherfucking series sometime, you know? And so it was really interesting to go back and read it. And, and it was that thing of like, I sat down digitally, read the first two parts, wandered off from it, and then was like, God damn it, I'm going to finish it. And part of me was like, is the reason why I don't like it the way that, you know, kind of like, I really don't like what Starlin does in Cosmic Odyssey with Jon Stewart. And most people are very much kind of like, you know, how they've resolved 
that in some ways. But his his take on John Stewart is very off putting to me. Uh, yeah, don't get me started. <laughs> well, yeah, you know. So, um, but also, I remember being. Um, I wasn't as in. I wasn't as invested in his brutal warlike Orion, but I feel like that take is been much more sort of the standard take in DC over time. So it's easier for me to make that jump with Orion when you see the Orion in King and Gerard's Mr. Miracle of like, oh yeah, you know, but it's very hard for me with Light Ray. You know, it's really very much a thing of, and it's not even like Light Ray is a character that I especially like, but when you read Kirby's New Gods, he plays a very explicit role that doesn't seem to make any sense with some of the current configurations of Orion, and so they kind of have to figure out ways to um, either cut him out or just change him entirely. And so part of me is kind of, there. there's a way in which the Mr. Miracle stuff, what works for me is the formalism of the scenes, the way they're constructed, the dialogue between Scott and Barda, just sort of the same way with the Batman stuff. Once it's sort of Bruce and Selina, I'm not so crazy with them calling each other Bat and Cat, but when they're talking with each other, when there's a coupley, bantery, knowledgeably gassy, you know, kind of just gassing about type thing, I like that a lot. That That's very valuable to me. I suppose, uh, in a way that I can gamble the rest of wherever Mr. Miracle may end up ending up, I suppose. Yeah, and I, I'm, uh, I'm on record as, as loving Mr. Miracle and finding it very, um, like, very personally affecting. Yes. Um, and I'm, I'm very curious where it's going after issue six. Yeah. Well, I, um, I yeah. Especially so. given what, King said about the structure of the series, mm-hmm. which was the first six issues is New Genesis, the second six issues is Apocalypse. Yeah, which is weird because because it... because, because given what happens in the end of issue six, mm-hmm. like there's a very literal reading of that, mm-hmm. um, and yet I also don't think that's where it's going. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So I, I'm Right. So there's part of me where it's like, yeah, that, like, take it, I can't even necessarily take that comment too much at face value. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very curious what it, what it's going to mean. You know, I, Uh, I feel like either you or Matt Turrell said, sort of mentioned in passing, um, like the, the Mr. Miracle from like Justice League and J.M. DeMatteis' stuff. In, yeah. in some ways, this feels like more of a continuation of that or those characters or that spirit. You know what I mean? Like it's... That was definitely Matt because it definitely wasn't me. Okay. Um, and that's, that's a really interesting take. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, that, that's something where it's like, from that light, it's sort of, it, a lot of it almost makes, more sense, particularly in the first five or six issues, where a lot of it is um... is is the same sitcom. It's the same yeah. the same concept of 
it's the Kirby stuff, but how does that fit into the, the domestic sitcom right. format? Exactly. Uh, and actually, this is hilarious. If it was me and I've forgotten, I'm about to compliment myself, but I really think it was Matt. Um, that's a really astute observation because the Orion take, I feel, really spins out of Tomatius and Giffen's JLI as well. Mm-hmm. Where he was gruff in a way that he never was in Kirby. Yeah. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Like he was he was aggressive and gruff in a way that Kirby Kirby always had him as the you know the noble hero. Well, he was the noble hero, and I even loved how Kirby grew him to the idea of he's he's actively trying to suppress his bestial side and the yes. the part the parts in Kirby where he then turns around and ends up embracing it is. You know, ends up being very, uh, chilling and effective. And it also, but it also feels like a lot of people are like, okay, I'm going to take that and progress from there, which sort of makes sense. But at the same time, also, I feel is, um, I appreciate it when it's done, even if, if, you know, like when Simonson is, is taking it in Orion to, his Orion series to have it be like, yeah, here's, here is a guy who is, you know, um, ends up sort of overthrowing the old dictator and becoming the new dictator. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it, well, I, it, it's, it, I think we've talked before about both of our love for the, the Simons and Orion series, but mm-hmm. in many ways that feels like the, an appropriate, Extrapolation of Orion's story as Kirby told it. Yeah, exactly. Like no, in a way, in a way that no one else has quite managed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where you you have you have Orion embracing his destiny mm-hmm. and ultimately rejecting it because his destiny was too limiting for for who he was. Because it, it, you know, following on from Kirby's take, mm-hmm. he was just a warlike son, right? You know. Mm-hmm. And and so so he he ultimately rejects what everyone the the role that everyone thinks he's destined to fulfill, mm-hmm. Inclu- including Darkseid. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because in many ways I'm like, and that was the last time we saw Kirby's Orion, right? Ever since then we've seen other Orions mm-hmm. who are much just the JLI Orion, right? Right? Yeah, exactly. Or in the case of like Azarello's Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. A dick. <laughs> <laughs> Which don't get me wrong, I kind of like that yeah. that version of Orion. He he then went on to do a lot of stuff in the Green Lantern and Robin Venditti's Green Lantern stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something to Orion essentially as Guy Gardner, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is really Orion as Guy Gardner. He's not Kirby's Orion at all. Yeah, and it uh, right, and that's even sort of the 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 I guess the, the milder take like that's sort of the mild end of the default setting and then you swing it all the way into you know however dark you want to go and and it's fine I mean it's I, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting to me is the God I I, I feel that there's a point where um my knowledge of the characters is almost working against 
my my ability to enjoy things. You know, I've certainly felt that with Tom King's Batman in a way, which is ironic because I feel like one of the things that works with with Batman is sort of all the different ways there is to do him, I suppose, even though it can be it it can be a challenge in, in many ways. I feel he has more flexibility than than um than other characters. But I was kind of thinking this a little bit in terms of us talking about um, Englehart's Fantastic Four on the last Baxter building, um, or even reading some of the Englehart stuff with um, uh, the West Coast Avengers, where Englehart is that is is that guy who is very much like he doesn't want to turn back the clock, and yet he also feels that the things that happened happened. You know what I mean? And he is supremely confident in that in his ability to be like okay whatever curveball you throw me about this character I will work with it I will take it and I will move that character to a new place that you know will hit some sort of notes that I want to hit with it and and a lot of those notes will be notes that fans of the character will appreciate you know and so there's sort of a classic continuity sense I guess you know and the way in which Englehart very much bemoans the way that editorial makes him turn back the clock in, in mm-hmm. FF. He he really does a passive aggressive uh, lash out, but I really do have those moments of like, uh, you know, just kind of that idea of like, um, for such a long time the I the I I sort of um, superhero characters really. Uh, functioned well for me as as the idea of people that were in a story you know series of stories that grew and changed right and I really bought into that sort of Marvel paradigm about them you know and and then at a certain point I feel like that has fragmented um, in the case of something like what DC does with the reboots of its universe you know, either in an incontinuity uh, sort of way or in the case of Marvel, just a complete, you know, free-for-all. Um, and part of me is like, there's a lot of characters that are actually strong enough, I guess, as concepts that it's kind of like, oh, here's someone going to come in with this concept and they're going to put it in a new context or they're going to have, they have a different take on it, you know, that that is kind of a spin-off. Kind of like that that metaphor that I keep returning to of like superheroes are kind of like food, you know. Like Batman is a plate of pasta, and there's a lot of different ways that you can do like a plate of spaghetti, but there's certain things you have to include in it. Otherwise, people are like, "This is not fucking spaghetti," you know what I mean? And and so I, I kind of feel like um, I really wonder how many comic book heroes there are that really have that ability to be, for me anyway, where it's like, oh, I'm really interested in this person's take on this thing. At a, you know, it's like that was never as strong a compulsion for me as I care about this character and what's happening to them and what's happening to them this month, you know? I feel like that has 
even if that's something that they're doing, like that could be something like I, that is something that Dan Slott has been doing in his Spider-Man run, for example. But it is really hard for me to dig my teeth into it, you know, because it's because my little trip with Peter Parker and Spider-Man, my ability to sort of see that character as a as a character that I cared about what had happened to kind of stopped a certain way ago, you know? And so again, like that thing with Chip Zdarsky where I'm saying like, oh, I really like what he's doing here. It really does have that feeling of like, oh, this is Chip Zdarsky's take on Spider-Man. And so it's a clever enough take that I enjoy reading it, but I can't really say that in my heart of hearts, I'm connecting to it in the same way. Uh, which would be foolish for me to expect that I'm connecting to it in the same way when I was 13 and reading, you know, or 10 and reading Jerry Conway and Ross Andrews run on the character, you know? Spitting off that then, is there any character that you still have that initial affinity for? That, like, you're reading that character and that character is a person? I don't know. Like, that, that, that you don't have the the, like, more arch take on, you know, oh, I'm reading Chip Zdarsky's version of Spider-Man, and I like Chip Zdarsky's version of Spider-Man. Right. Um, I don't, I don't, that's actually a really good question, and and I think, arguably, the closest that it can really come to it is, and uh, hopefully I'm wrong, and there's other things that I'm not thinking of, you know, but I feel my gut instinct was to say, well, you know, kind of weirdly, I feel like The Walking Dead, you know, like I pick up that book every month. It rises to the top because there's this weird compulsion of I want to see what happens to the characters. You know, some of those characters I don't care about. Some of those like for I went through a period when I was reading the book in print and not doing getting behind and, fall, you know, and then having to catch up where I was like, couldn't even recognize some of the characters, you know, but there was this weird, like, I was very aware of, like, when this story comes to an end, I don't think that I'm going to need to revisit it. Like, I don't really have much... It's like, I don't really think much of Robert Kirkman as a comic book writer Mm -hmm. at all. I wouldn't think of myself as a fan in any way, but I couldn't see a way in which if he ended the comic, you know, with the death of Rick Grimes and then it was going to be someone else stepping in to tell the story or if they were going to reboot The Walking Dead with like a different set of creators or a, a new fresh take on it, I, I don't think I would care, you know, but I'm also having a little bit of I don't know how much of that is. So there's a certain level of, of narrative investment that I have that's in invested in the narrative slash characters in a way that's not the as much as the take, if you see what I'm saying? Sure. I, I, here's a question. For, it's it's funny because when I asked the question, I was like, I wonder if there's anyone I still have that feeling for. Right. And my answer is similar to yours in a weird way for the reason I'm about to get to, uh-huh. which is, do you think it's important that The Walking Dead is still written by the person who created the series? I don't know. I think so. I mean, I think so. I think there's, I think there's a, I think, 
I, I would say that that probably is a, a really strong factor. Um, why? Because was, was that something that, that plays into your answer or what you thought or? Yeah, cause I was gonna say Judge Dredd. And then it's like, uh, John Wagner still writing Judge Dredd. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, and that's, and it's funny cause it's not like I'm like, Judge Dredd is my friend. You know, me, me and Judge Red, I love to read about what my friend is doing. <laughs> in the, you know what I mean? But it's more, Dredd feels like uh, the same character. Mm-hmm. Um, and feels like there has been a, I mean, mind-bendingly slow, mm-hmm. but coherent evolution of the character. Mm. Uh, to the point where even when I reread earlier Stories, or when I read, uh, like flashback stories by other people, mm-hmm. it still feels like the same character in a way that, you know, it's impossible to read Superman stories and be like, well, Superman's been the same guy since he first was created. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, and it was, but it was impossible even before they had continuity reboots. Yeah. You couldn't read Superman in 1938 and Superman in 1958 and go, this is the same character. Mm-hmm. You couldn't read Superman in 1978 and think this is the same character. Right. Um, but Dread feels like the same character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, the same writer has been in control of him for all the time. He's not written all the stories, but has been in control. Mm-hmm. You know, and sets the tone in a way that it's, I genuinely can't think of another fictional character who has had one person control them for 40 years. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, but it, you know, I wonder how much that authorial voice is there. You know, and how important that is. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's actually it's a it's a good question. I don't know. I for myself, I sometimes think that certain characters have a shelf life, and depending on how old you set the character as, weirdly, I think that helps. So, I mean, you can get a a lot of stories from Peter Parker's high school student, and then you can kind of get it to college student. And then beyond that, there's a certain level of like, does it work for you? Doesn't it, you know, some of us would say yes, but at a certain point, you know, Marvel clearly chickened out and was like, okay, we got to roll some of this stuff back. We got to roll back some of this progress. You know, somebody like, sometimes I feel like, Batman almost by being of a certain age like it's easy to like Batman is not you don't necessarily think of the character as a young man you know what I mean so therefore it makes it a little easier for you to tell stories about the character in a way where they sort of exist in that no man's land of middle age where either you don't know what that's like you know, because you haven't lived it, or when you're sort of living through it, it there's enough status quo when you're in your middle age. I mean, not for everyone, but for a lot of us, it's like we're with a spouse, we have a job, you know. Some people, maybe after six or seven years, they, you know, lose their job or they lose their spouse or change their spouses or whatever. But there's a, but there is a belief in a status quo that sort of makes it easier to kind of believe like, oh, yeah. You know, Batman's still going to be doing his Batman thing, you know? Uh, and then at a certain point, 
I don't know if after you age out past that, like, will there come a time where I won't be able to really, you know, connect with those characters, even in that abstract way? You know, I, I, in other words, I feel like Dread has an advantage in the sense of he didn't necessarily seem like a young man when he first appears, you know, um, and that gives you a lot of leeway to, for him to age. And one of the things that's miraculous about it is, is that they do continue to age Dread. It's, it's something that I think is very interesting to me about, and this is, Punisher is a character that is almost without character and sometimes I wonder if that is all to the better in that he is a he's a concept and b he's he you know you can take someone like Ennis who's like I'm perfectly okay with having him fought, fight in Vietnam and this is a guy who's like you know 60 years old who's like shooting people. I, he's like, I, you know, I'm okay with that. I don't think that's going to be the case in another 20 or 30 years, of course, or even another 10, but, mm -hmm. but it, you know, he's, he's able to figure out a way to make that work. Cause again, you know, uh, the Punisher very much grows out of the, this is the vengeful father figure who's lost his family. You know, he's, he's already kind of in patriarch town, you know? Um, so, because it was interesting when you mentioned Judge Dredd, because part of me was like, well, the Punisher, but I don't feel any strong emotional investment with the Punisher. Like, again, it's very much, I like Garth Ennis's Punisher, but his Punisher is still a quote-unquote take, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't have really any interest to, like, read, like, I really like Becky Clooney as a storyteller and creator, and I'm like, yeah, I should check out her Punisher but I don't feel a real strong oof to it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not like, God, what have they done to, you know, what's Frank going through this month? Like, that's just not there. So the comic stories, like long-term narrative serial fiction stuff. It's really, it's a weird, it's a, it's a weird game, isn't it? You know, it's, it's kind of a, it's funny because I'm like, maybe this is a good segue to talk about Star Wars, the last Jedi. Um, you know, and or a couple of other things uh, that that I've watched that are semi, um, you know, fanboy related. But Let, well, let's talk about the a couple of other things. I'm curious. Okay. Uh, well, uh, what I was going to say was the the sort of the trifecta was Star Wars: The Last Jedi, uh, the end of the fucking world on Netflix, um, and then following that up with American Vandal on Netflix. Uh, and the first two, of course, you know, are, ha are it's very are easy. Are nerd-related. Yes, yeah, are very heavily nerd-related. And American Vandal is a very uh, interesting, I suppose, tangent to all of this stuff in that, um, are you from, did you watch American Vandal or no? No, but I know what it is. I just haven't watched it. Right. So uh, for people listening who, who uh, don't, and I, I, I think actually most of the listeners will know, American Vandal is a, a series on Netflix, about eight episodes, I think, that takes the, um, it's almost... It, it's, it's a true it's, life documentary series, like well, format. Yes, it's a parody of the true life crime documentary series. It's almost like a... a 
comedy version of serial where a high schooler is accused of an act of serious vandalism and is uh suspended and the um a couple of other students decide to make a documentary about it because they feel it's unfair and they go about trying to solve the mystery of what really happened. And so it's definitely a comedy because it takes the tropes of the true crime serialized narrative and, and plays with them, makes them very, you know, makes fun of those tropes. And yet at the same time also does a great job delivering those tropes. So as the series goes on, it's utterly ridiculous. And yet at the narrative is strong enough that you're super invested in uncovering the crime and who did it and what happened, even though it's, it goes back again and again and again to any number of just absolutely ridiculously dumb dick jokes, you know, and so it's it's uh it's it's satisfying, but it's one of those things that I think is kind of interesting to me, you know, that maybe connects in this conversation in the sense of like, oh, I care about these characters, I care about the 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 story, and yet as someone like part of me is like, oh Graham, it'd be great for you because you love serial, you know, and therefore you would you would get the jokes even more yeah, clearly. Yeah. Whereas I'm someone who like knew that Serial was a thing and that was out there and can sort of tell the tropes as they're as they go along because of how they build on them or twist them or whatever, but they're still sort of uh they're they're it's not it there's it's still somewhat foreign and distant to me. So I thought that would be interesting. End of the fucking world, uh the the Netflix Adaptation of Charles Forsman's, um, excellent graphic novel that started off as a series of mini comics. Apparently the, the filmmaker who made, uh, The End of the Fucking World, uh, came across the mini comics as they were being cleared out of a comic book store, like more or less found one in the dumpster, read it, thought it was great, and went in and was like, where can, where can I get more of these? Um, bought the mini comics, wrote Chuck, apparently, they developed kind of a, um, you know, an epistolary friendship. And this guy was like, I'm a British filmmaker. I, you know, shared his film with him and was very much like, I want to do an adaptation of this. He kept trying to set it up as a film. And the way it came about, it ended up coming up, coming out is as a series on Netflix. And it's very satisfying. It's a great adaptation. It's really, really solid and enjoyable. And, hits so many of the same notes but does it in a very different way like I, I've got to say the trailer for that really put me off it put Edie off as well you but I think you should watch it it's 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 very different I, I don't know how to, it's different from the trailer which I didn't I don't know if uh, I well, here's my question is it as jaunty as the trailer because that's what put me off uh how do I put the answer to this? No, definitely not in the long run. Definitely not in the long run. Um, it has a, it has a tone. It has a darkly comic tone, 
but I feel like the trailer plays that part up to make it funnier, I suppose. And yeah, see, the, the trailer's tone was. Have you seen Submarine? I have not. Uh, it, it's. I, I really like the film Submarine. Um, and Submarine is like simultaneously like heartfelt evocation of and parody of like teenage boy angst mm-hmm. um, and like you know fancying the wrong girl and, and you know how do I fit in with the world uh, what are my parents are the aliens type thing um, the the trailer for End of Fucking Worlds or the, the trailer that I saw the, the Netflix trailer um, honestly looked like someone had Red end the fucking world. Mm-hmm. Watch submarine and then thought, but what if I do these two but wacky? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, no, not wacky. <laughs> like wacky. Like it made me just, um, it made me protective of the source material. Yes. In such a way that I was like, I don't want to watch this. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's the weirdest comparison to make. I felt protected of the source material in the same way that I did when I saw the fucking, uh, Inhumans TV show. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, I feel like you've misunderstood this so much that I can't watch. Yeah. Whereas I don't, I don't think that it, I don't think that it does. Uh, um, okay. I think that it's actually a, a pretty good, how do I put it? It feels like a faithful adaptation, but it is definitely an adaptation in the sense of which is which is yeah, fine, fair, I guess. right? So you know, yeah, we're getting we're also getting back to like the the um, it's a take on right thing is again right, yeah. which I think is necessary for the sense of 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 adaptation. you know as you do as you add up when you adapt something. But I I really did think it was very strong and very enjoyable and worked in a variety of things that. Yeah, just tonally it was like, oh, this is different from the original, but it, but it worked in a way that was, yeah, it was faithful in its way. So it okay. really, it did. It worked for me quite well. Um, well, that, that means a lot because uh, honestly, you know, one of the things that, that, that put me off was they, they didn't feel faithful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it, it, it yeah, it's weird. I'm like, yes, it is, it is faithful. Which is funny because I'm like, it's not necessarily how I would have, it's not, it's not how I, I read the material when I read it, but I feel like in some ways, but it definitely works. So that was good. And then, uh, and in that sense, to move it all the way back, I guess that kind of brings us to Star Wars The Last Jedi, which really is, uh, an uh, interesting little film to uh, like. I finally saw it. I felt like I was among the 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 last person on Twitter to see it. Certainly, and um, and I I like I said on Twitter, like the parts of it that I loved, I really loved. I don't know how much of the movie that technically encompasses, you know. But well, okay. So, how, what parts of it did you love? I'm curious. Uh, what did I love? Um. I loved the fact that it had a, it tried for a visual sumptuousness at certain oh, points. Oh, it, it definitely did. There, there's, there's visual set pieces in that film 
that are 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 not only beautiful but are so not Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there there's stuff in there where I feel like the director is visually referencing a lot of different movies and a lot of different takes in a way that to me feels very um in line with Star Wars A New Hope, you know, that that mm-hmm. idea that Lucas himself is actually kind of pillaging a lot of different movies and genres and specific things that he likes to to make Star Wars. Um, I feel like Last Jedi really does that in a way that gave me that I just I was like, oh, this is nice. Like, I think what I thought was interesting is the way in which The Force Awakens is a movie that is very specifically trying to recreate the visual pleasures of Star Wars A New Hope. I yes. thought it was great that Last Jedi is a, trying to create the feeling of that A New Hope has of taking a lot of things, uh, of giving you a certain visual pleasure um, that isn't necessarily locked down to that specific thing. One of the things that I said on Twitter that I feel is very true is, is there were parts of the movie that felt so like Ralph McQuarrie drawings come to life, you know? And there's a way in which as a, as a kid, I was always struck by, cause I saw Star Wars, loved it. And then, you know, because Star Wars mania, they were just shoveling anything they had. You got to see a lot of the Ralph McQuarrie, um, you oh, know, concept art. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's very, it's very different. You know what I mean? Like one of the things that I, I liked is, is that, that particularly the, a lot of the stuff with, um, with Luke Skywalker has a, um, sort of that Lord of the Rings in space feeling that you, that they were really trying for. Like, you know how, um, Remember when we were talking about Stephen King's The Stand and I mentioned that ridiculous yeah, like cover? Yes. Yeah, which yes. just really was. Like, what the fuck is that? Like, that feels much more closer in tone to, to the way the visuals end up in, in Last Jedi, you know? I, so, the, there was... I, a, I, I'm going to interrupt for a second yeah. and say that um, I have read have you seen the art of the last jedi book like the coffee table book no no i haven't uh i i love the star wars art concept art books like just because mm-hmm. i find them fascinating like uh and it's actually fascinating to see the number of comic artists that worked on it mm-hmm. chris west worked on it tonky's logic oh, worked on it wow, beautiful. Uh, glenn dylan worked on it mm-hmm. jock worked on it so there's like a you know really recognizable names mm-hmm. um but Ryan Johnson does the introduction, and he specifically calls out Ralph Macquarie's concept art for the original films. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. So I mean, so it's funny that you're like you're you're mentioning that, and I'm like, well, yes, he, he's like you're you're spot on. He's 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 like you're definitely picking up what he's putting down. Yeah, exactly. And so it was very exciting. It was like, wow, he's really putting that. Like he's he just changed it enough. It's just that weird thing of like he's giving you know luke enough of a different outfit enough of a different look to his like yeah he's got the beard but it's 
it's different. He is definitely going closer, and in his characterization too, closer to Crazy Wizard, you know, more Gandalf-esque um, than even where you ended up with in in A New Hope. So I thought I thought that was very exciting. Um, Abe had a great comment uh, when he was writing about it, which I was able to then, thank goodness, go back and read, having seen the film, where he, I think he said that the the thematic math is really strong in The Last Jedi, and that means kind of a lot. You know? Wait, uh, unpack that for me, because I like I enjoyed The Last Jedi a lot, mm-hmm. but one of the things problems I have with it is I think that it doesn't have the courage of its convictions. So, so unpack the thematic math part of it. Uh, to me, it's the idea that, well, um, the thematic math to me, I mean, is that Luke, the way that I feel Lucas originally sort of foresaw uh, Star Wars was the idea of a, a sort of a cyclical concept, you know, essentially the good guys become the bad guys, you know, that, the that, uh, you know, the, to me, the big, the big tell is the award ceremony for Luke, Leia, Han, Chewie, and et cetera, uh, which is, which is visually referenced from Reifenstahl's, uh, Triumph of the Will. You know, there's a little bit of that idea of these characters are going to rise up and the rebellion that they create will become the status quo. The status quo then decays and it's very much a very 70s cyclical yada yada shmada shmada kind of thing. One of the things that I felt like The Force Awakens sort of laid the groundwork for and I felt that Last Jedi takes a step further is is that the that it that it basically takes that idea and twists it which is that the that old characters are going to eventually be wrong and they have to be ignored you know it's like they 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 fail and their failures which usually fall down at a level of emotional relationships that are only hinted at in Force Awakens and Last Jedi, the idea that that Kylo Ren is a character that ends up being failed by at least two of the three heroes, you know, by both Han and Luke, and the lengths that they, you know, each takes to try and resolve that failure. Um suggests, you know, kind of this idea of like the, 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 the new doesn't have to totally destroy the old, that there are lessons that it can learn, but the old has to step aside for the new. Like, I know that that kind of, that message sort of gets very, um, murky when you have the fact that one of the storylines is very explicitly like, Laura Dern and Princess Leia's characters know shit better. Yeah, no better than Poe Dameron, but that's yeah. that's kind of it's kind of a different thematic slice whereas the stuff that 
there's there's a lot to be said for the way in which um Ray defies Luke and goes off on her own it to 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 confront Kylo is you know on the one hand a very clever mirroring and shadowing of Empire Strikes Back but is also ends up being its own thing for different reasons feels different fails for different reasons and therefore isn't as easily analogous you know and well, there and therefore can't be applied can't be solved by the old people doing the old things except that Yoda who is the oldest of them all shows up and is like hey Luke you're wrong eh does he I mean I feel like he shows yes he, yes, he does he sh- well he because he shows up to deliver the lesson that Luke's supposed to learn I, uh, yeah well no because I, I, Luke goes in and is gonna burn all that shit down and then hesitates and then Yoda's like no you're wrong but Yoda also knows. She, but Yoda also knows that Ray's taking the books, which Luke doesn't. Has Ray taken the books? Yeah, they're in the Millennium Falcon. You see them. Oh shit! I missed that. Fuck. And that's, that's why. That's why Yoda says she has everything she needs. Oh. Well, that sucks ass. I'm sorry, I missed right? that. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, I missed that. Which is, what, which is what I. Which is one of the reasons I say that, like, I feel it doesn't have the courage of its convictions. Right. Because. On the one hand, like the movie comes really close to being like, oh, it just really is a case of everything you know about the Jedi Order is wrong. Mm-hmm. And that Luke is questioning it. And like, that's really interesting to me. Right. It's really interesting to me that the, the, to take that to its ultimate, uh, you know, to take that to its ending. But the movie doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. The movie purposefully doesn't. Because it goes, no, Ray's got the books. And in the end, Luke even does his speech where he's like, if I die, I'm not going to be the last Jedi. Let's cut to the last Jedi. Oh, it's Ray. Right. And so the whole thing feels very, um, cowardly ultimately for me. Because it comes, it's like, oh, question it. And then it's like, no, it's not. It's everything's okay. Well, but we don't. And, and so- I mean, maybe it sure seems like that. I mean, it is one of those right taken on its on its own terms. Except part of me is kind of you've got you a last Jedi that what's that? But you have to have to take it on its own terms because right. Ryan Johnson isn't doing the sequel. Yes, you know, and now that J.J. Abrams is doing the sequel, it's you know it's going to go completely back to the status quo. Yeah, I think so. Like, well, it, it'll be it, some it, form of it. Uh, and so, like, if you have a movie that just fail like has lots of really interesting things in it mm-hmm. but just continually undercuts it um the the benicio del toro, del toro character mm-hmm. comes in to be like oh you're all complicit which is you know he then gets blown up and then that's when finn's like no i'm a rebel and it's like oh, okay sure and you know on one hand I'm right there, like the ten year old kid in me is right there. He gets to, you know, be the hero. He then gets to you know, have his moment with Rose on on crate. Mm-hmm. But the the ambiguity of of Benicio del Toro saying, you know, both sides are the same because both sides are are uh, serving the serving the status quo. Mm-hmm. Both both sides are propping up the war. Yeah. And the true villains aren't either of you. Mm-hmm. 
but the people who are profiting from the war. Right. It's for me immediately undercut by the movie then having the character that's delivered to like Rose never believes it, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Finn is potentially believes it and then rejects it. And I do think that he's meant to. Like I th- I think that that we as an audience are meant to reject what Benicio del Toro and I refuse to call him this character's name. Um, right. You know, I, I, is is saying uh-huh. and that again feels like it's 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 coming really close to doing something that that would disrupt the the mythology, and then would rather embrace the mythology again. Well, and that was really frustrating to me about Last Jedi. Well, I see, cause I feel like for me, just the fact that there's a degree of ambiguity there, part of me is but, like, that's kind of, part of me is like, that's refreshing enough, you know? But was that not, like, did you think that about the prequels? Yeah, well, I mean... Because in the prequels, like, the entire plot of the prequels is essentially that the war is fictitious. Yeah, no, uh, well, believe it, me, it, that's it really, part of why my my Attack of the Clones is like, I mean, that's great. I mean, that's that's my favorite part of Attack of the Clones, is, is but the I, fact But I guess that, that's what I'm saying, like, is, is that... Does that mean that there's anything new in Last Jedi? Well, but... Because it's not making the argument, but in... But in and then rejecting it in a way that like Lucas didn't in the prequels. Because <sighs> um, it's the entire it's the entire arc of the prequels not I mean that's not true. Is the Emperor's arc of the prequels not that the war itself is uh essentially fictitious, but a way for him to gain power. Well, sure. And to manipulate. Well, I mean, that's, that is the, the Phantom Menace. And I mean, that's right? very much, that's, I mean, I, but, but, I but love what doesn't. Lucas is, has sort of saying about various elements in the prequels. A lot of that is really strong. Some of it I find, a, you know, problematic and the execution isn't great. But I guess that's my thing is, is like, I feel like Johnson's making a Star Wars movie in that Lucas himself has a lot of ambivalence about what he's trying to say. And he keeps feeling like what he can make is one super generic, some, some all encompassing statement. But, but the fact is, is that Lucas, once he turns around and embraces Joseph Campbell's, uh, hero of a thousand faces, that the heroic myth, the the portions that he accepts of that and he he ends up completely throwing off a lot of the original charm of a new hope and he's trying to move to in a in a different direction with it because he's like oh this is going to be super resonant that it's not like one of the things i like is is the idea of like there's a point where and who knows where it will go? Like you said, with J.J. Abrams, it feels like chances are good. It's going to go right back to falling into the groove. Uh, but when Kylo Ren is saying to Ray, like, you're nobody. You're from nowhere. Your parents were nothing and nobody cares about you. But, you know, but I care. You know, what I thought was really interesting for me is I've got a friend who was like part of what they loved about a new hope was that idea of 
anyone from anyone anywhere can, yeah, yeah can make a difference and i think that that i think that there are ways in which one of the things that i think is interesting about a force awakens and it gets continued in last jedi is the way in which those things are being the the thematic struggle the the struggle as to which theme to embrace ends up mirroring itself in the way that the some of the characters end up struggling as to which side of themselves to embrace you know the new or the old or the the concept of the self you know like you see in the last jedi Kylo Ren's turn to ahistoric nihilism uh, is definitely seen as quote-unquote wrong and also seen in a weird way as inevitable. And so I think there is a way in which The Last Jedi is not saying like, yeah, you just got to burn the whole past to the ground, you know, what it's saying is something a little more moderate and temperate, you know, which I think is kind of, again, I think I enjoyed it in the moment in and of itself. And the, the like I said, it helped that I didn't see the, the damn books leaving in the Millennium Falcon or it just didn't register any conscious way to me, I guess, if I did see it. But, you know, for me, the rest of it is kind of, I don't know. You know, it was thrilling in a way that that helped make up for the fact that the people who make Star Wars are clearly ignoring how space works or <laughs> which, which was stunning. And, uh, you know, if, if anything is central to Star Wars, it's not actually going along with how space works or as Ambush Book once put it. Uh, George Lucas was once told there's no sound in a vacuum. George Lucas is now a multi-millionaire. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, sure, I can see that. But then to turn around and double down on that is crazy. Crazy. With what? The bombs? Or? The, the bombs? There's the points where the ships lose power and are bombing out and then oh, yeah, sink? That's, that's hilarious. Unbelievable. <laughs> like, I was just like... What the fuck? Like, it was amazing. There was, there was like two or three other things where I was like, I'm being slapped in the face with this. This is staggering. I can see why people were kind of losing their shit, you know, or rather people were hiding the racism and sexism under this because this is amazing. Like, it's, it's, it's a fucking ether. Like, there's a, there's a medium there. It's like, Jesus. Anyway. Um, and a few other things. Like, I honestly thought that there was, uh, I felt there were parts with Finn and Rose's mission where I was like, oof, this is, you know, kind of like, wow, this is an extended shout out to young Indiana Jones, you know, or, or just, <laughs> you know, stuff that didn't land uh, for me in ways that I thought were really kind of bad and embarrassing. There was, there was, Actually, so much of the movie that doesn't land, and yet I like the movie. Yeah, I, I think I I might have said it to you. I might have said it to Matt. Um, it's a movie that I simultaneously liked more in second viewing, mm-hmm. but have to not think about it because the more I think about it, the more I'm like, actually, it's terrible. Yeah, no, I like I said, and I think that's sort of where like oh, the thematic math works. Like like 
There, there's for me, and apparently that's not even the case for you. But once you get to the visuals, I honestly did think the showdown with Luke at, at the end with Kylo Ren was pretty genius. Like now that of course I'm reading stuff and seeing people on Twitter complain about it, I'm like, are you fucking shitting me? That was great. Like what kind of fucked up problem did you have with that? That was perfect. <laughs> you know, just, just weird stuff like that. And which was interesting to me because I really did. Once they got to the, oh, here's, um, you know, here's where you're going to have your, uh, your empire style ending where they sort of barely get away, but cliffhangery sort of thing. Um, and then suddenly they're like landing in the base and then the, they're being surrounded and they've got to jump in the little, salt skiers or whatever part of me was like Ugh, I don't know if I've got it in me for this climax this just feels like one ending too many but I really felt they earned it like by the end I was like I'm I'm totally into this this totally earned its extra yeah we've got to go over you know it's extra 20 minutes over two hours you know it, so yeah no really it did work for me but I was also fascinated the way in which for me, and perhaps this is an inevitable, I found myself caring more in the sense of that formalistic, like, oh, thematically, hmm, the Macquarie influence. Wow. I think that, you know, he cribbed that shot from like Sejun Suzuki. There's shit. That might be a Matthew Barney reference. Weird. You know, you, you know that he did film school for everyone making the movie before it, it, they started, right? No, but I totally believe he it. he he apparently like had two weeks of like every day he'd show a movie and then everyone would discuss it. Yeah, Be- yeah. like before they started working on the movie, Which and I great. think that's so clear when you see the film. It does, it does, and like I said, but it somehow feel it feels um, it feels organic, which I think is interesting. It, it's fascinating to me that how much. Like I had, I had real specific reactions to Looper, I suppose, where I felt like Looper was not a, it was a movie that I stopped caring about emotionally, um, maybe an hour into it, but just continued to get more and more interesting to me in a thematic, what the fuck is he doing kind of way as it went on. So I'm kind of prone to that stuff. Uh, although weirdly, part of me's like, God damn it, if Adam, they certainly made a really smart choice casting Adam Driver. Maybe there's people who are being driven nuts by him, but I'm like, that guy is putting way more work into this than, you know, than you would Daisy Ridley. You know, I, Daisy Ridley. There's particular line readings, especially when she's like doing the exposition dumps. Yeah. Uh, look. That are just so bad that yeah. I was like, you couldn't have done a reshoot of that. Well, I don't know. Isn't that weird? Like, there's just parts where I'm kind of like, uh, yeah, she had some stuff where I was like, I guess she's just not that good an actor, I guess. Like, that was the best they could get. And they were just like, let's quit while we're ahead. But I, which was frustrating. But like driver stuff really is like the shit that he has to sell that I really felt he sold. Like I was kind of like, huh? Okay. So this is, this is kind of this weird, like, Oh, he's going to be the most interesting character in the trilogy by far. 
and yet it really in a way that is a lot um more daring i suppose than than Darth Vader i suppose cuz Darth Vader is kind of like sure you know everything's all there you know and it's it's all mystique there the the conflict is all just suggested and you know you don't really see his face until the very end of things whereas whereas Adam Driver is just like really having to sell shit in a way that is just would be if it didn't work it would be really bad and it does not let that stop him really carries it off you know I am um, someone tweeted this week that uh, episode 9 is going to start with Kylo Ren going I've changed my mind I really like my helmet I've made myself a new helmet because <laughs> seeing as Ryan Johnson like hilariously like in the first fucking scene this has someone being like your helmet's dumb and then he smashes the helmet and he's done yeah. um I'm like I'm weirdly disturbed by Kylo Ren's popularity. Yeah, uh, like I, I really am because I'm like, oh wait, it's it's like it's the MRA Nazi, and yet people think he's cool. You know, like I, right. I I'm yes. really I, I'm really am disturbed by how many people are like, no, but you know, he, you can feel his pain deep down, and I just want to be like, this is why. Like, this is why 2017, everyone. No, no. Isn't that amazing? Like, one thing that I do think is impressive is, for me, one of the reasons why I I will defend Attack of the Clones on any number of levels is you go back and you look at it, and it's got that really weird way in which everything that Lucas is talking about hits the American culture and zeitgeist at precisely the same time, you know? So you have him, he's, he's setting it up in advance with the Phantom Menace, but Attack of the Clones literally is about a manufactured war at precisely the time that the United States is going into a manufactured war. And it's right. fascinating to me that you've got a situation in which the press cannot stop giving an out to, um, young fascists in a way that this movie really does you're like oh i'm giving an out to this young fascist and it is it's and it is a thing in which it's kind of it it at least makes sort of weird sense in the movie you know it may it, in a way does that movies though? may not in real life well okay there's two things which are fantasy figures uh, conflicted male fantasy figures are, you know, start from, you know, sense and sensibility in the gothic novel and, pro- you know, probably before, but certainly from that period on, it, though the, the tortured romantic hero has, can, cannot by definition be safe, you know? And so there is a way in which Kylo Ren is out there as a figure of anguish that, you know, has been responded to for like ever, you know, what's sure, sure. interesting is, is that whether intentionally or accidentally, you know, the creators posited him as anguished and upset in a way that maps uncomfortably well to 
white male anger currently, you know? And what I think is interesting is, is the way that Star Wars The Last Jedi leans is the idea of reaching out with love is a, you know, the, the, the line that I think Rose has, the loving, you know, preserving what you we, love. We, we, yeah, we, rather we, than we attacking by, what you hate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, is, is, makes sense. Like the, how do I put it? Like the math makes sense on that, uh, in movie talk. But it is one of those areas where the gap between fiction and reality, you know, is such that those aren't always the best solutions. You know what I, I mean? I, like, I am, yeah, I am genuinely creeped out by the number of people who are like, well, Kylo can be redeemed. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, in narratives, like in fictional narratives, that's what we look for. Mm-hmm. But with that comes an expectation of uh, anything he does can is okay. Right. Like he means well, really. He's troubled, but he means well. I think, I think we're, and I, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like transferring that, like I've, I don't know. There's something about because because he is so clearly like, he's fucking Richard Spencer in space, right? No, I, you right. know, yeah. I mean, and I, so I find something really disturbing about seeing people be like, "Oh, but he means well," and it, and at the same time be like, "Let's punch Richard Spencer." Right. Well, and it's like I feel like you can't have both. I, I don't know. Well, I actually, I don't know. My worry is is that you sort of is when you don't have both. You know, like my, I like to, I think one of the things that is hard for us to wrap our brain around is that the reason why we have fiction is it gives us things that we don't have in life, that we, that we want to believe can exist, that have to exist as, you know, hope, uh, to, to be, to underscore another thing that runs throughout Last Jedi a lot. But, I feel like there's a lot of ways in which America, part of how America got itself into its fucking messes is believing the myths and the fictions or wanting to pretend that the myths and fictions are real, um, in a and and therefore can be a hundred percent applicable to reality. Like there's sure, and that, that and that's my problem with with the acceptance of Kylo Ren, I guess. Right. Well, but for me, my yeah, my worry is is that the acceptance of Kylo Ren, which is more or less in many ways kind of a way in which the narrative moves or has to move, um, is a function of drama you know uh, if you want to build it past a point of anything more sophisticated than just sort of super melodrama or or instant reaction you know if you want to build something that's dramatically compelling you get you end up building narratives that reinforce bad messages you know like a classic example to me is, is the, is, is, you know, the dirty, is dirty Harry, you know, one of the things that's amazing about Clint Eastwood 
this movie is the idea that you have, like, kind of that idea of, like, you have a police force, which are many people, and you have one lone killer, right? How do you make it if if drama always leads you to root for the underdog, how can you make a movie that doesn't end up sort of steering you toward like, well, I kind of want to identify with the bad guy, you know, you create a narrative in which it's, you know, like Dirty Harry is the guy who's really all alone. Like he's the police officer that is superior shit on and hit the other cops, you know, respect him, but won't give him any backup. And the reporters all think that, you know, he's like a smelly nut, you know, in other words, a way in which no police officer in the history of ever has ever really been treated. And yet <laughs> it ends up becoming the basis by which you essentially end up with Reagan's America. You know, and beyond Reagan's America, it becomes such a cliche, lethal weapon, everybody cop, every cop movie, every movie, where, every cop, everything where cops are taken in and yelled at their supervisor and told that they're out of line. You know, it's it's this thing that people believe to the point where they're like crime is out of control and criminals are being mollycoddled and. And it, and it rolls this whole machinery down the line, and it's just a weird, unintentional side effect, I feel, of trying to make, you know, a drama where it's like, well, <coughs> how can we make it so that we have the police officer cop actually seem like he's got a challenge as opposed to having infinite resources and infinite disposal, you know, at his disposal? to be able to catch a scumbag, you know? It's kind of a weird... So similarly, I feel like we get into these weird realms of, you know, oh, here's a character, the, the tortured character who can be redeemed or might be redeemed, and that's sort of the crux of the drama, cre kind of creates a... um, How do I put it? Like a weird inability to believe in the nature of evil unless you conveniently paint it across an entire ethnic race. You know what I mean? Like, oh, sure, the Germans were evil, you know, but then it you sort of start getting into this weird, like, oh, yeah, you can have an evil other, but you can't... The, the self is redeemable, you know, that's where Christianity comes from. But it's also kind of this idea of, like, if you don't have that, you step one closer into melodrama, you know what I mean? And then... So I just feel like there's this unfortunate tendency in which our dramatic choices end up society is like, oh, yeah, right. You know, th well, but... that they believe at at a certain level, you know, you end up believing that. And then you get people who, whether because they believe it or they're incredibly cynical, are like, you know what? We should really give our editorial page over to Trump supporters and let them <laughs> you, you tell us. You mean first order supporters? We should give the hollow net over to. First. Um, oh does uh, I agree with you to an extent. Uh huh. Uh, I also feel like I should get off the subject of this movie. Um, <laughs> why? Because it's driving me crazy, also, or is it just that? We'll but I also why well, I, I just feel like we've spoken a really long time. I lost Jedi. Sorry, about um, everyone. Uh, but I also want to to get to something else about this really quickly which is 
Does Finn's arc not supply the the um, ambiguity and opportunity for redemption that you're ascribing as necessary to Kylo Ren in order to prevent melodrama? That's a really good question. Because I think that, again, there's a little bit of the... Um, that, you know... Um, and Matt, who writes about over at the Savage Critic about Last Jedi, if people listening to this are not crazily bored, should and want more of this, should go and check out his uh, very sensible set of smart takes. I feel like I'm not sure the extent to which the post stuff exists as a. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of it. It's it's so thin. It almost exists Wait, more. Did, yeah. You mean right. the Finn stuff? Oh, sorry, the Finn stuff. I mean, did, did you say Finn? Because I went I'm, to Poe. So yeah. yeah no, so. I'm expressly meaning the fact that Finn starts the the Force Awakens as a as a stormtrooper. Oh right. And and then then as two movies as essentially uh, learning better. You know. It's funny because I feel like that whole thing is sort of really hollow. Um, you know, like Finn starts as a stormtrooper, but you don't have much of a sense of him. Like he turns kind of almost immediately, as I remember from yeah. Force Awakens. Yeah. There's not much of a sense that he was, um, invested, I suppose. And, and maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I mean, I feel like they've got a lot of stuff that they're, that they kind of don't know how, how to handle. I feel like they really wanted in Force Awakens to have a sense of, like, if, if he's being redeemed, there's not much of a sense of from what or to what. I mean, I think the closest thing that you do get is this idea that, you know, that what Rose sort of puts down is about as close as you can get to anything that is is being picked up that Finn tries to in in his end run on the MacGuffin mobile gun um is replicating the the hubris that Poe makes at the beginning of the film that costs them their bomber fleet. And as Matt points out in his essay is a reflection of Luke's turning off his targeting in a new hope in some ways. Like we're supposed to recontextualize that scene or it's supposed to infuse it. Um, and and so that's kind of my thing is like, I, I don't have one of the things that I feel is frustrating about The Last Jedi is that and I think the reason why I think there is a reason to be concerned about the Kylo Ren story is it 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 almost feels like the only story like who Ray is, is, you know, is she her parentage or not like who? Who her family is, who is she, is one question. And Kylo Ren, who is he going to end up being, seems to be the other. But both Poe and Finn are feel like 
people for whom the narrative is being imposed uh, from the outside. You know what I mean? Either by the script makers and kind of a, well, let's make, we don't know much about Poe. Let's say that he's like a crazy hothead pilot, you know, type guy of that, of that stripe, you know, um, Finn in particular has a lot of, a lot of the movie is, is him being like, I have to do this so I can help Ray. And then at the end of the movie, like there they are on opposite ends of the room and you're like, huh, well, I wonder if that's gonna, you know, is it, are we looking at a new romantic triangle in the third film or are we not going to be looking at Bupkis? You know, the extent to which Rose is a character or a corrective is kind of hard for me. And I think one of the things that is a little worrisome about The Last Jedi is the way in which the characters feel like correctives rather than characters is uh, potentially problematic. It's not as problematic for me because I feel, if nothing else, the correct some of the correctives are necessary, but without the actual infu- infusion of a of a of I don't know character or something character drive. Like I don't I don't know how if the third how the third movie can sort of work in a way. You know what I mean? Like I just don't I don't really know where they will take that. Like and. I don't necessarily know. I sort of feel like in Return of the Jedi, you have Luke's story, but like, you know, like after they get Han Solo back, there's a whole chunk of that movie that's kind of like, well, what's this movie about? You know, like where, you know, it's really hard to watch Return of the Jedi and be like, oh yeah, there's some real struggles going on with, you know, Han Solo and his destiny or like Leah and her like, you know, um, being torn between her, her personal passions and her role as a political leader. You know what I mean? Like none of that's in there at all. It's just kind of like, ah, now we got to run around and stop a second death star, you know? And it's, I don't, yeah. You know, part of me is like, I don't know. Return of the Jedi isn't really, Return of the Jedi isn't really about anything other than let's see if we can just Star Wars again. Well, you know, the thing that I think is really interesting is that's how it, that's how it feels. What I think is int- reading people like, uh, I've, I've shouted him out before. Let's hope that I get his name right. Um, give me a second. Uh, disaster year 20 XX, uh, Chris Reddy, who mm-hmm. writes about, Video games and movies and everything. I love his, his take on movies and I was really fascinated to see what he would say about Last Jedi because I really liked what he said about Return of the Jedi, which is basically that Luke proves everyone wrong. He's basically his own man. He knows that he can, you know, basically an Empire Strikes Back. He goes back. He saves his friends, you know, and it, it pays off. And then in The Last Jedi, uh, Return of the Jedi, he goes in and, and despite everyone's warnings, he can redeem his father. And I think there's maybe something really deeply buried down there about, about Luke's redemption of Vader in a way that is about turning its back on the Jedi, which again, sort of in that way that the last Jedi 
faints towards that and doesn't do it. Return of the Jedi doesn't do that either. Like, by the time you get to Luke, Lucas is so compromised by the way that he makes, when he makes Return of the Jedi, there's lots of shit that he he wants to do or wanted to do and by the time it's there you're kind of like it's it's all so neutered it is like it doesn't seem like it's about anything you know i've heard people even say like yeah. yeah the idea that you you know that the empire becomes fixated on making the death star over and over and over again is kind of an apt metaphor for you know the empire or for tyranny and i was like yeah that that sounds good but it just really seems like these people just don't fucking know what the fuck to, how to top that one. You know, like I just, I don't know if you say so. So I don't know. I don't know, Graham. I and have to say. We're like, we've topped it by making. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. You were saying we topped it by making what? I was going to say another Death Star. Yeah, right. Exactly. And Force Awakens is like, we're calling it Star Killer Base, but it's a Death Star with trees on it. Yeah. At least it wasn't a Death Star. But yeah, again, it's just, you just get to that point of like, what the fuck are you going to do? You know, and like, you've got the people in the novels where they're like, ah, oh, yeah, we've got a, we've got a sun destroyer, destroy suns. Like, uh, we, we've got a, we've got a, we've got a, 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 a carnivorous, uh, solar system. Like, it's just, it's tough. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of, it's, <laughs> you can only go so far. Anyway. Uh, Grant McMillan, you said, I think you said there was a place you wanted to go after we, we stopped talking about Star Wars. Was that true or was that well, just? It, here, here's the funny thing. I realized there was another piece of news, arguably the piece of news everyone wanted to talk about, which we haven't talked about. Oh, people didn't want us to talk about the return of the trunks? Uh, the return of the Trumps? Trunks. Trunks. No, no, I don't think they did. I think people might have wanted to talk about the fact that Marvel has a new publisher. Oh, do you think? I I, I don't know because I'm not sure what we have to say about it. Yeah, I, it's but funny. It, it's yeah. it's one. It's so my my comment is really a sort of meta comment, yeah. which is I honestly thought it would be a bigger story than it was. Mm-hmm. I feel like no one really cared. Yeah, no one. I, did, I feel like I feel like we should care. We probably should. Uh, we probably should. Uh, people who don't know, because it didn't seem like it was a story that got a lot of heat, as Graham points out, uh, Marvel announced that they were going to have a new publisher that Dan, Bu- they oh, no, made no, it no. sound they, like they, Dan Buckley was, they made it sound like he just stepped down, and I think Graham was the no, one who no, pointed out no, that it was, was back amazing. in September, right? Yeah, what was amazing is they made it sound like no one has been doing it. No one has been Marvel's publisher since Dan Buckley became president of Marvel. Oh, okay, Dan right. He became yes. president of Marvel in January 2017. Yeah. So they are suggesting no one has been the publisher of Marvel for a year. Yeah. I don't think that's true. Yes. Uh, I'm fairly sure, in fact, that when Dan Buckley was announced as president, it, he was announced as publisher and president. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me as well. But now, now they're like, the position's been vacant... John Nee, formerly of DC and Wildstorm, has, is, is taken over. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, 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 um, it's, it's a weird thing. We'll see how much of a change agent he is. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, that's one of the things that I think is hard because Buckley, of course, was really happy to stay out of the spotlight. So 
there isn't much of a sense of where 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 is the publishers where what what was Buckley's role in the previous Marvel iteration, you know, as publisher. Right. Uh, so, but yeah. but he was there for fucking ever as he a publisher. Was. Yeah, over a decade, right? Yeah, yeah. since two thousand three. Yeah. So I mean that's a huge period of time in which Marvel did all this stuff. And yet because Buckley's name isn't attached there which is weird because I really feel like that is that is a dramatic shift from uh, previous publishers. Certainly, the idea of uh, Paul Levitz as, as publisher at DC um, is you well, know. but even like the Dio and Lee being publishers of DC. Yeah, absolutely. No, right. Well, I was going to say I was you know I just really feel like it's it's it used to, and even at Marvel, it was who was publisher was a thing up until. You know, again, Buckley. So yeah, I think I think it's really hard for people to jump up and down about it because it was this idea of like, what is it? What was it? And Marvel's only too happy to kind of keep those waters murky. I think, you know, when they're not saying things that are is like you said, really quite probably not true. You know. Yeah. So. Um, Jeff, I'd say it, but you're beginning to fuzz out on me. But we have been talking for two hours. We have. Let's call back and we'll, I guess... Wrap it up. Yeah, wrap it up. Right? Right? Yeah. Maybe? <laughs> it okay. could happen. Boop, boop. Boop, boop, indeed. Boop, Jeff. boop. So I spent, uh, I spent a lot of today listening to podcasts. Oh. And part of it is, part of the thing that made me really amused is, I listen to a lot of podcasts where they wrap things up, and they wrap things up by basically saying who made the show. And so they'll be like, you know, I'm so-and-so, and my guests have been so-and-so, and so-and-so, and they'll be like, and our producers are, and it's for some reason always more than one producer, and they're like, and in the control booth, and then so-and-so is their editor. And I was just thinking how great that would be for us to wrap something up and be like, I'm where McMillan with me has been Jeff Lester, our producer is Jeff Lester, in the control booth is Jeff Lester, uh, editing has been Jeff Lester. And uh, thanks very much to everyone at Blue Apron and Jeff Lester. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that would be great. And then for the Baxter building, we just reverse that. But yeah, no, it is it is true. There are times where I'm like, oh, God. Like, you listen to things, and I'm like, producers. Jesus. <laughs> producers and editors. But then again, like... um Explain the X-Men has producers. Yeah. It's it's like there, there are people who do this podcast shit like more properly than we do. <laughs> yeah, you know, more power to them. Uh, and people, I, I want to say. Ever what would it be like if we had like studios and producers? I can't, I can't, I can't. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? I could, I mean. Would it not be weird? Like I was thinking about that, seriously. Would it not be odd if if we were doing like if we were having these sort of conversations in the studio, would you not feel awkward? I don't know. I don't know, Graham. I mean, I have to say one of the things that I think is kind of interesting is because um, I, uh, as you know, I we usually have a face to face podcast um, at least once a year, and I remember right before the first one, you were like, "Oh God, that's going to be uncomfortable," you know, yeah, looking at each other face to face. But I think at a certain point, we always get so engaged in what we're talking about. You know, that I think if it, even if it wasn't a, a studio or whatever, it would just be, I think there might be longer times uh, where we would feel uncomfortable, maybe, but it would be great is people would just be like, uh, the producers would be like, yeah, let's just cut that part out. 
Uh, put a note to the editor to remove that, and we'll put in that jaunty thing there that Graham says. You know, like they just fix it. <laughs> we, can't, we can't do that. <laughs> the post production thing would be great. Yeah, <laughs> they'd be like, "Oh no, he said this thing in like two hours that was really funny. Let's put that yeah by, that, back at start." Yeah, exactly. But for us, it's just you know the thing that's ironic is is I really thought I knew I wanted to talk about Last Jedi. I did not think that it would happen that long. But I honestly thought I would bet you money that um that we would that this week would have been another um reinstallment of Bob Haney Theater because I Oh because you read the world's finest issue because they put it up in Comicsology. Yes. But 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 of course so at first I was like, oh man, I can't believe Graham didn't mention this. I really gotta talk about that. I can't believe Graham didn't mention that. But then I was like, that's kind of boring and Graham basically deserves better than that. So I went and bought <laughs> issue 252. Which that... I just read this week. Oh my god! Because I, I got that at the same time. Oh, that is genius. So, yeah. I think I even put 252 a page of that up in the, the Tumblr this week. Because sure 252 is the Whisperer issue, yes, right? Yes, the Will of the Whisperer. Which, which is... is just, oh my fucking god. god. Oh my god. Oh. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It is. Everyone, yeah. Comixology has World's Finest 251 and 252 up right now for 199 which, let me tell you, is a bargain. Yeah. Yep. A bargain. Yeah. Bob Haney is on top form in both of these stories. Uh, the Whisperer one in particular, though, holy shit. Yes. Amazing. It is very much... Uh, a, in fact, in fact, I currently, I tweet, let's, to give you an idea of just how hot the Will of the Whisperer is, I posted just the first caption from the story. Oh, I thought, what is that? As a tweet. And that tweet has 42 likes. Why is this man feeding one million dollars to a fish that never lived? As I put in the tweet, Bob Haney sets the gold standard for story hooks. You know, opening line story hooks. It is, it's golden. Anyway, it just goes on from there. It's just, it's just, it's staggering genius. Uh, but yeah, those things are great. So I was like, oh, just, I'll, the same way that Graham read this one to me, I'll read this one to him. But eh, maybe next time, people, who knows? Oh my god, then that's the reasons for everyone's come back next time, because the Whisperer story, I, honest to god, I could not get over the um, commentary on journalism and celebrity culture that, yeah. that comic is in 1978. Yes! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'd like, but it's talking about the world today. I know, right? It's kind of, it, it, it is a little, it's a little uncanny in that sense, and completely fucking absurd. But yeah. Oh, of course, it's Bob Haney. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But does it not just make you want them to put all the fucking Haney issues up on, oh, on Comicsology? Immediately. Immediately. Which reminds me, I tweeted this. I really want to mention this as a public service announcement to our listeners. This listeners, made me mad I don't get Hoopla, I have to tell you. Yes. If you have Hoopla, you should look and see if your library subscribes to the Hoopla system, which allows you to download uh, comics and movies and books. I can't speak for the audio books or the movies function, but the, the comics, uh, the, the reader is perfectly functional. They have the 
Bronze Age Batman, a.k.a. Batman in the Brave and the Bold, available uh, on Hoopla. You can just check that out and download it. It's issues 74 through 109 of the Brave and the Bold. It is almost entirely Bob Haney and Jim Mapero, but there's some Dennis O'Neill, some Dick Giordano, and some Neil Adams in there. It is fucking bananas. I actually bought, I have that omnibus on my shelf right above the computer. And I'm like, you bastards can just get it for free. Do it. Download it. Read it. Love it. It is, it is, it is. It's some great comics. It really is just so much great comics. Oh my God. So, uh, I really wanted to let you know that Hoopla if you have it in your area and you've got a digital reader so that you can download the app is free. You can check that son of a bitch out for like 20 days or something like that. And it is, it is, that's like just being invited to comic book heaven for a party. You know, you should, you should definitely not pass that up. All I'm, all I'm saying is this, the next episode, which is going to be the beginning of February, I guess. Yeah. Jeff, if you really do perform the the whisper issue uh, nothing would make me happier nothing <laughs> not one thing we will see we will certainly see i would love i i just i love it a lot so part of me was like oh my god i figured i'd be excitedly telling you so the fact that you have it is phenomenal so i i i, I got that and i got 251 and 252 at the same time yeah. and like later issues which aren't painy which is, although that, weirdly enough, Haney actually jumps to the Green Arrow backup. Oh, weird. Huh. Interesting. But yeah, there, but it's not Haney doing Superman and Batman, which Haney and George Tusca and Vince Coletta, is that not a dream team? Oh my god. <laughs> Tusca and Coletta are wonderfully cloddish as artists. Well, I think, I think that's it. I mean, there's, to me, what I love about Haney and Apero is it is how it seesaws back and forth to to the ridiculous and the sublime like cuz it goes back and forth you know what i mean you're you're pretty much stuck in ridiculous gear when it's like tusca and coletta interpreting this stuff but but oh my god and it's amazing the shit that bob haney it's almost like they told him that he had to f- like make his stories in continuity and he was like okay fuck you you know because he really is like at one point the whisperer is like yes he's going to leak the story that jim gordon killed an innocent man and batman's like oh shit they're going to reveal the night that like commissioner gordon killed an alien and it's like see batman 135 from 1953 i'm like oh come on bob haney no no but it's not though it isn't not like he's not referencing one of his own Brave and the Bold issues there? Oh, you're right. He is. It's the it's with Boss Dyke and the Gorilla Boss from the yes. from 251 is from 1953, which is hilarious because it's, it's set in 1978. So you're like, what? But yeah, you're right. It is. It's it. You're right. It's Brave and the Bold. Bob, Bob Haney has like a Bob Haney verse, and it make nothing makes me happier. Yeah, no shit. Right. That that's that is kind of amazing. You're right. So yes. Genius. Uh, so, as Graham pointed out, A, we need to stop doing this tonight. And 
That's exactly what I said. We need to stop doing this tonight. <laughs> and uh, next week is a skip week because, wow, the month just flew by. And... Right. It really has been. And, Jeff, I have to, we have to talk about scheduling because oh. otherwise the following week may also be a skip week. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I know exactly what you mean. In fact, February is going to be uh, – yeah, we've, we've, we have some logistical challenges to work out. To put it that so way. what we're saying, what nuts is we're definitely not here next week, and beyond that, <laughs> only the fates know. <laughs> Keep watching the skies. Uh, yeah, we'll, but we will be back. This is this is why God invented RSS feeds. But we, but we will be back. That's yeah. sure, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty confident. Yeah, maybe we'll see what happens. Yep. <laughs> this is when I point out that. Uh, you can check the website, see if we're back. That's waitwhatpodcast.com. There's also going to be show notes and, and other things on there. While you're waiting, why not check out the Tumblr at waitwhatpods.tumblr.com, where I really am pretty sure I put up at least a page of the, the Whisperer story this week. Oh, God. If you, I want, hope a, so. if you want a preview, I, 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 Jeff, I put up the page where, uh, is his name Dave Thomas? The journalist quits yes. and makes the hilarious racist comment on his way out. Yes, yeah, about yellow journalism. Oh yes. my god, I cringed uh, when yeah, I read that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I put that page up. Um, and why not? You should take that as a hint to go and check that out. Just Jeff's, oh my god, expression, vocal there should be a hint that you should really go and check that page out on waitwhatpods.tumblr.com. Uh, we have a Twitter at waitwhatpodcast. Jeff has a Twitter at lazybastid at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-T. I have a Twitter at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. Not whatever Jeff spelt it as on Twitter yesterday. Jesus Christ. Oh my God. Not at Graham. That's some other poor bastard that you tagged. Unbelievable. Um, You didn't acknowledge this in any way and then call it out at the close of the podcast. You are a professional. Yeah. Of course. I'm oh not, no, I'm keeping, I'm keeping my hatred in and right up until the end of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the reason I mentioned Steve Morris is Steve Morris did it when he tagged me, uh, because I wrote up an issue of Justice League of America as a recap for his Shelf Dust site. Ooh. So if you go to shelfdust.com, you will see me write about Justice League of America 123, aka the issue where Carrie Bates becomes a supervillain on Earth 2. Wow. You know that you want to read up a recap of that. It's it's the beautiful fucked up issue. So yeah, shelfdust.com is where you can read that. Um, but, whoa, this is the point where I say we are a patron supporter podcast and Jeff steps in. I do. I'm like, hey everyone, we love our listeners. We are so grateful to the fact that you um, seem to appreciate us. And in fact, the people uh, on Patreon who are listeners uh, give an even stronger impression uh, that they appreciate us because they actually. Oh, um... there's got to be some better way to put that. <laughs> well, I didn't know. I didn't want to make it sound ambiguous. These people who probably hate us, us because they actually give us money. I've. I'm clearly... just. I'm just saying. Like, Let, let's start this you, again. We love you all the same. Don't like. Jeff's gonna. Yeah. Let's just start over. <sighs> Listeners, we love you <laughs> all the same. But like any parents, we appreciate the children that take care of us in our old age. <laughs> I love the oh ah ah. It's going weird already. <laughs> 
listeners, you are all awesome. We really do. It's hard. I'm already starting to bend it already. Uh, you're <laughs> just, all great. Just, Jeff, you've got this. You've got this. I know Go. I can handle this. I've done this before. We are very fortunate to have uh, you as our listeners, and it helps keep us engaged and um, willing to do crazy things like talk about The Last of the Jedi for an absurd amount of time and then kick ourselves for not repeating a Bob Haney story at length to you. The fact that you uh, put up with us, it touches us greatly. And we are also greatly touched by our supporters on Patreon. Yes, that sounded wrong too. It was so good right up until that point where no, it's like, no, it, it's let's just just keep going. Let's podcast go. to podcaster to Twitter, people on Patreon touching me inappropriately. Uh, we we you somehow made it weirder. <laughs> <laughs> we will never get to the end of this, uh, which is really why it's funny. It's there's you know Graham how like some sports players like they they. They have a lucky jersey that they wear or like they have, they've, they've got like this superstitious ritual that they do before every game to make sure that, you know, that they win like some yeah, sort of yeah. deal. I always open up Evernote at right before we get to this portion because Evernote has the little shout out to the people that I'm supposed to uh, shout out. Yeah, the, 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 the good folks at American Ninth Art Studio and Ampersodry. Exactly. Well, of course, I'm like, I'm like, I don't need to open that. I know American Ninth Art Studios. I know Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. We're grateful to them both for their continuing support of this podcast and the fact that they have not crushed this corner of the galactic rim into a fine paste. Those are both awesome things, as are all of our listeners, uh, including the ones on Patreon, who throw us a little bit of the yield fat stacks to help keep us. Um, I'm I'm going to start loving Springback Dosh. I'm going to tell you what. I swear, there's no pleasing any of you people. All right, I got to admit, I miss Dosh as well. It's true. Oh, well, gosh. I'm putting this to vote. Why not? Seriously. What? I know. I know there are people. Who are are not a fan of Dosh, mm-hmm. but Jeff and I it seems both miss saying Dosh or miss <laughs> Jeff saying Dosh. It's true. So so use the comments. How do you feel about Jeff saying Dosh? Pro Dosh, anti Dosh. Um, uh, wishy wishy Dosh. You decide. <laughs> you decide. Letter you decide. Oh Jesus. Um. So yes, I think somehow in the midst of all that de- deconstructed mishmash, and no, I'm not talking about The Last Jedi, uh, I managed to get uh, a little bit of the Patreon out. Graham? This is when I should spend like 45 minutes getting around to doing the bye. <laughs> just just to follow that up. Exactly. But it's it. <laughs> God bless you, Graham McMillan. God bless you. God bless everyone.